Hello, welcome, Ricky Bucata, Greg Henry, Mel Herbert. Hi, guys. Hello. We're going to do something a little special this month. One of the problems is is that when you subscribe to this Risk Management Monthly publication, you're entitled to go back to all of the prior issues. And unfortunately, you don't want to listen to all that stuff. Yeah. But it's not like reading old newspapers. The stuff that we did three years ago is just as important today as it was before. So what we have decided to do is to summarize the first year of Risk Management Monthly on this session. And we think it'll be a two-disc session. Yeah, I don't think it can be done on one session. No, it can't, Rick. And more than that, are you telling me that at the same low price, they're going to get two discs instead of one? Yes, they are. But if you subscribed three years ago, it's going to be this again. But if you subscribed (laughs) six months ago, it's going to be, hey, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff, yeah. So we have distilled down what we think to be the key points of each month's issue. You can go back to the notes from it if you want to dig deeper in terms of hearing more discussion on it. But we think we're going to try to hit the high points month by month by month. So we're ready to begin, gentlemen? Let's. We are. Do it. All right. So we began this sucker in June of 2007. And we started off with some general legal concepts, which everybody needs to know. And the first one is the Greg Henry mantra of to sue is to lose. To be sued is to lose. The only way you make money on malpractice is not going there and not participating. No matter who wins, technically, everybody loses. Yes, except some people may get a lot of money, but all doctors lose, that's for sure. The four components of a successful suit. Greg, you should be doing this this one, but I, we sp- split it up evenly. Duty to provide care. Well, that's obvious. If you're working in the ER and the person's there, the number one, scratch that off, the duty's established. Number two, you have to breach a standard of care. A standard of care is determined by expert witnesses on the stand. You can get all kinds of weird stuff being claimed to be the standard of care, but it's not based on textbooks or articles. It is based on doctor's testimony. Well, doctor's testimony should reflect one thing, Rick, that which a reasonable physician of like or similar training would do under like or similar circumstances. That means there isn't just one right answer. And reasonable doctors can disagree and still be within the standard of care. We can probably stop right there, Rick, because I think the last three years has been about this point. Standard of care, (laughs) you get a little focused on that topic. I just like the concept, because people ask you this all the time, what is the standard of care, how is it derived? And it's what a similarly trained emergency physician would have done under the same circumstances, as sort of elucidated by... Your experts, their experts, and everybody sitting around saying, yeah, that guy seemed to do the right thing, or they totally screwed up, but you can't find it written down anywhere. That thing doesn't exist. Of course not. It's impossible because it's a constantly shifting sand because as we change, the standard of care changes. The other thing is what you do at 2 o'clock in the afternoon at the Mayo Clinic is not what you do at 2 o'clock in the morning in Keokuk, Iowa. Your resources are different. Your backup is different. Your testing modalities are different. Let's give some of our colleagues a break here. We do the best we can with what we got. And you know what? If anybody thinks there's going to be a uniform care, standard of care in this country for all people at all moments, you're smoking dope. That's not the way the world is. My notes here says that it is not necessarily what the majority would do. You could have a substantial minority doing something different to help establish the standard care. And don't confuse standard of care with standard care. Correct. Standard care may not be consistent with good or evidence-based practice, but there's a difference. There is this question about regional differences in terms of, as you pointed out, 
a big time center or not, access to technology, access to specialists determines regional differences. There was this idea that there's a uniform standard and, you know, there's telecommunication and there should be no differences, but that's really not true. As a result of not following the standard of care, you then screw up somebody and they get hurt and this breach of the standard has resulted in these damages and that basically establishes you're up the crick. This is called the harm, Rick, and the harm has to be related to some deviation of the standard of care because this is what we call the proximate cause. That is, because somebody died and you did certain things doesn't mean they're related at all. It has to be a damage which is caused by a failure to follow some standard of care. And that concept is the difficult one to explain to juries. Because grandma's dead, it's not because they didn't give her enough sodium bicarb during the resuscitation. So I want to go over that again just to summarize it. So what we were talking about is the four components of a successful malpractice suit. You said you have to have duty to provide care. That's pretty easy when they walk in the door. There's the duty. There's a breach of the standard of care. There's harm, and that harm has to be proximally related to what you did or didn't do. Exactly right. And that's the four essential components. Now, we did talk about and have in years past which one of those is the most important in terms of losing a lawsuit and trying to defend on the basis of proximate causes. Not so easy to do, whereas breach of the standard of care is an easy one to get caught on that All the lawyers will tell you that there are two kinds of defenses. Number one is a standards of, of care defense. That is, my doctor did not violate the standard of care. The second one is what they call an outcomes defense, or a proximate cause defense, which means, yeah, he didn't follow the standard of care, but it had nothing to do. That patient was going to die no matter what happened. And we've all seen those cases that no matter what was done when they walked in the door, the sudden subarachnoid hemorrhage, who now you do the CT on, and there's 50% of the brain has been depressed by this hematoma, if you think you've got a magic treatment for that, no matter what you do or when they're drained, they're going to have a bad outcome. So all lawyers divide defense into the proximate cause defense, which is the last one they want, and the first one they want is adherence to the standard of care. And if you've had a really bad, bad day, they could say your behavior was not just civil misbehavior, but you were criminally negligent, and we're going to go after you. Your malpractice insurance is not going to cover you, and you could get hard time for that if you were so criminally negligent, which is the extension of really bad day. In all fairness, Rick, there's only been a couple of those cases in the country, and I'll tell you right now, if there's any more of those kinds of cases, you're going to see a lot more people not wanting to be emergency doctors, because the thought of that just puts stool into your pants. Well, you know, we had a doctor at our hospital, an anesthesiologist, who was criminally charged. Well, we have one right now. Congratulations, not, buddy. Not at our hospital. <laughs> Michael Jackson's former physician. Criminal charges have been there you uh, go. brought before the courts for, because of what he did. Thank he you, deserves God. it. Thank you, God. <laughs> the next time you start giving. Propofol, go to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, Propofol, yeah, in the bathroom. Now, this thing break. got into a little bit of making people aware of the Tarasoff decision. This is where a duty to third parties, either known or unknown. In this case, it was a known third party. This is the successful suit of UCLA by the Tarasov family because a psychiatric patient told the psychiatrist who worked for UCLA that he was interested in raping and murdering Ms. Tarasov, Ms. Which, Tarasov. He, which he then successfully did. And the issue was here was, are you allowed to tell people about, is this like the confessional kind of well, thing? Well, this was the debate, Rick. 
is the doctor-patient relationship a sacred relationship, i.e., what you tell your priest is a little bit different than what you tell your doctor. If the doctor has reasonable belief that someone is at harm, he has an obligation, he or she has an obligation to inform that person who may be at harm. And they can do it in multiple ways. They can talk to the person who's at harm, or what they really should do is notify the authorities if they think someone is at risk. Also, in this area of be careful, it may not be covered by your malpractice insurance, is the liability associated with not doing mandatory reporting. Suspicion of child abuse, elder abuse, crimes of violence, disorders characterized by lapse of consciousness here in California, state by state in terms of that little part of it. Let's go over that point one more time. When you bought malpractice insurance, you bought malpractice insurance considering medical activities. When you start to wander over into activities which are not truly medical, i.e. following the usual and customary laws of your state, the insurer has no responsibility to either defend or pay fines. And by the way, you can be sued by the state. You can be prosecuted by the state for failure to follow the law. The family can then sue you civilly for losses and you would not be covered by your malpractice insurance policy for those kinds of activities. We need to pay attention to what insurance covers and what it doesn't. All right, and this issue ended up with discussion on consent. The hospital's general consent form may be inadequate, (laughs) is what one of the things was pointed out. And does the patient have the mental capacity to consent? This is your professional judgment indicating you don't have to give any kind of formal test. Is the totality of your experience. Elements in informed consent is three parts. You've got to advise them what you want to do and the pros and cons of that suggested care. You have to advise them what the other options for care are and the pros and cons of those other options. And thirdly, you have to tell them, well, if we do nothing, here's the pros and cons of doing nothing. Most people don't even say anything about the options. And this has repetitively come up in the literature. You got to do these three things to make that informed consent. And when you put down, Greg, I remember that you said, I could put down usual and customary discussion. That that You don't have to engrandize that. If you just put that down, It basically means you did these three things. That's exactly right. You can't write down everything you do, but you can indicate in a very shortened way that you have carried on a discussion. And in general, then you may have to give an explanation of that in deposition. But you know what? Nobody's expecting an emergency doctor to carry on some long discussion on the chart. If that happened, we'd be able to see, what, six eight patients a day. I mean, that's. let's move on to July. July was a great issue. We started out with a discussion of the expert witness. And the problem with the expert witness is what doctors view as an expert and what the trial judge views as an expert or the various states view as experts is totally different. In some states, an expert in emergency medicine is somebody who has a license to practice medicine and may have worked in an emergency department 20 years ago. In some states, that flies. In the state of California, you usually have to be a board-certified emergency physician to speak against a board-certified emergency physician, which is what I think it ought to be. But if you think for one minute that the term expert is used the same way in medicine and in law, it's totally different. An expert is who the court is willing to take opinion testimony from. And I think that's a key point here. What the expert can speak to is opinion. 
in my opinion, this is what should have been done in this particular case. It's always good when you're looking for your expert to understand that you have a perfect right to assist counsel in coming up with experts. And you want somebody who understands emergency medicine practice. You want somebody who is good in the field and somebody who knows how to present. I've often been criticized for the comment that medicine is show business for ugly people. But if you think medicine is show business, you ought to see the law. This is a theater noir tried in front of 12 people who couldn't get out of jury duty. And those 12 people are going to decide. And if you don't think presentation is important, you're absolutely wrong. You want an expert who knows what to do. The second point we talked about was the Daubert challenge. And that is when you hear expert testimony, and particularly in it's your case, and the expert on the other side is saying absolutely ridiculous things, which are really not defended by the science, you have a perfect right to have your attorney challenge the scientific validity of that testimony. The famous case on which this is based is Daubert v. Merrill Dow. And the Daubert v. Merrill Dow was a 1993 U.S. Supreme Court decision. And we talked about that specific decision. But the key element is this. Whether it's federal or state, almost all of the jurisdictions have adopted some form of the Daubert decision. That is, state law may not use the term Daubert, but they say that there is going to be a mechanism to challenge quote-unquote junk science. If someone made the statement that 80% of people who got TPA became normal, that's junk science. It has nothing to do with anybody's study or anybody's report. This is the kind of thing that the physician ought to know, ought to monitor, and let his counsel know when junk science is being proposed. Next thing we talked about was the fact that ASAP has come up with the expert witness reaffirmation statement. If you don't know about it, get a copy. It's right online. Just go to ASEP.org, pull it off, and this should be signed by everyone involved in the case. Defense, those people working for the plaintiff, but what it says is the 10 points which ASEP feels should be followed by any expert witness. And number 10 is you are willing to have your testimony, sworn testimony, deposition or trial, looked at by the Ethics Committee at ASEP to see whether you are within the reasonable guidelines of medicine. And by the way, the college has sent letters of censure now to, I believe, five individuals for what we call egregious in the original Greek meaning of that word, which means away from the herd. Testimony which is away from the herd. And I think this is what the professional societies should be doing. Would you believe this guy? He's dropping a little Greek on us. Yeah, <laughs> a little Greek. Babe. Greek to me. Away yeah, from me. Yeah, yeah. All right. But all the professional organizations are now doing this. Not only ASEP, but AAEM has a program as well to look at this. And they've done some pretty outstanding outings on some individuals. And you should be aware that this kind of judgment is going on. The last thing we talked about was against medical advice. We hit the four important points. Number one, that piece of paper you have him sign isn't worth crap unless you followed the actual doctrines of against medical advice. Anybody can scribble on a piece of paper, but here are the issues and we'll just get them out of the table quickly. Number one, do they have the correct age? Are they an adult? 
Number two, do they have capacity? Do they have the ability to know what's going on? If they're drunk and falling over, those people don't have capacity. If they have altered mental status, and here's the test I use. When I check their mental status, if I don't think I'd let my brother out with that kind of mental status, I'm not letting you out either. Wait, give it a little time, things clear up. Third thing is you told them what could happen to them. Against medical advice, I'm saying, you know what, you could walk out of here and drop dead. You could be having a heart attack. You put it in words that the patient can understand. The last one is if they have family, you get the family in there. You don't want the family to be uninformed that you've made every reasonable attempt to get that person to cooperate with the program. I have all of them in there. If there are three family members, I have all three of them sign the chart because I want them as my witnesses that what I did was aggressively try to save their relative's life. And others would say, bring a nurse in so that she can also, or he can also sign the chart. So everybody's clear on what has transpired here. You want to do a little bit about emancipated minors? Oh, I got a list here. You got a list? Age 18 or greater, legally married, in military service, or living on their own and providing support for themselves, which is actually to be defined by a court whether in fact you are truly doing that or whether you're just you know a part-time waitress and in fact you're not really supporting yourself. In most states, Rick, parenthood, a woman who has a child is emancipated. That means she can make decisions for that child. Let's say she's 16, has a baby. Well, a 16-year-old usually is not considered an adult, but the act of giving birth emancipates you in most states. It's I don't know that it really emancipates you. I think it may encumber you. <laughs> well, <laughs> you notice I use the term emancipated and not set you free. But uh, it's interesting that maternity emancipates you. I don't believe paternity does. And we need to think about that. How come a guy who's fathered a child is not, by definition, an emancipated minor. I have no idea. It's but a little easier for us. Yeah. I yeah guess you have every 11-year-old would be an emancipated <laughs> minor, you know, crying out loud. Okay. Cardoza, you want to tell us a little bit about Cardoza? Yeah. I'll tell you about Justice Cardoza. He's one of my favorite people. Justice Cardoza, by the way, the thing that made him famous was his doctrine in 1914, and that's when he sat on the Supreme Court of the state of New York before he was elevated to the U.S. Supreme Court. And he said something which has driven health policy in this country now for almost 100 years, and that is every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his or her body. And I think that's exactly right, that we have to step back. We're health care advisors. We help people make decisions, but in the end, they have the right to decide. And so... Cardoza had two key elements here, your adult years, that means we consider you an adult, and sound mind. And all the cases I've dealt with on Against Medical Advice have dealt with this sound mind doctrine. So the most important thing you can document on that chart is the capacity of the individual. They don't have to make a correct decision, but they have to have the ability to make a correct decision. As I point out, perfectly smart people jump out of perfectly good airplanes every day. It's not my idea of fun, but they've properly taken on, and the concept in law is the assumption of risk. If you want to assume the risk, go ahead and do it. Well, one of the things that comes up in these cases is doing your best within the constraints placed upon you. Somebody wants to go home, and you've had chest pain, 
You're going to give him some aspirin. You're not going to say, okay, you're out of here. Goodbye. I'm washing my hands of you. You're going to maybe give them some, maybe nitro, maybe not. Aspirin for sure. If you've got an infected hand, you're going to give him some antibiotics. It may not be ideal, but you're going to help him out there. Short of breath, you're going to give him an inhaler. Those kinds of things say this is a reasonable person, and he did what could be expected of him considering the constraints placed upon them. And the other thing is when people are still in the department, but they refuse a specific treatment. Well, I was going to get to that. We always talk about against medical advice when they leave. It's the same thing when they say, well, you can't do this. I've once had an 18-year-old girl say, well, you can't do my pelvic. Well, in lower abdominal pain in females who are sexually active, not being able to do the pelvic exam does sort of hamper you. It's like practicing medicine with one hand tied behind your back. And so anytime anyone doesn't want to participate with what your decisions, I would note it on the chart and have a nurse note it or someone else note it. Is there something else I can do to get this done? And there was in that case. The next doctor coming on was a female in a half hour, and she said that would be okay with her. You know what? I just note that on the chart. This is what we did, and that's how we took care of it. And if they won't let you, for example, in those cases, you have to offer the next best level of care. So you don't say, because you don't let me do the pelvic, I'm abandoning you. Bye bye, I'm done with you. No. You have to do as much as you can. If it's just an abdominal exam, it's a abdominal exam, and you write in the chart, this is the best I could do, here's my plan. The last attitude a doctor should ever take is, it's my way or the highway. Most of life is a series of negotiations. That's from stopping nuclear missiles to going to bed with your wife. So what you ought to do is learn to negotiate well and document what you could negotiate with the patient. Should we talk about the ideal form? I think we covered that, the ideal form. It basically makes it clear that you've considered the mental status of the patient. You've told them what the issue is that you'd like to do. You've basically gotten people signing that everything, this conversation has taken place, and they sign on the part of the patient and the relatives, and that you get a nurse, and you're signing, and everybody's signing, that we understand what's transpired. Let's make another point here. When you see one physician who has and excessive numbers of against medical advice, I don't care how well he did the form, there's a doctor-patient communication question. I bet in the last two years, I haven't used the form twice. If you know how to slick them, you know how to talk to them, you could pretty much bring them to where you want them to be. And this is dangerous stuff. When you pick out a guy who's, the, most of the department has one that month, and some guy's got ten, I'd ask a question. Because there's something they don't understand about the practice. So let me ask specifically, because some people believe there is this myth that if I can get the patient to sign out against medical advice, I'm off the hook. And you would say that that's not true. That's crap. I presented, I believe, in that discussion in July, we talked about the case where the patient signed against medical advice form. He was so intoxicated that it was absolutely illegible. In fact, the handwriting was so bad they thought it was the doctor's. And the first piece of evidence they presented in court was that signature. And they asked a guy who's an MD, PhD, neuropsych guy, they said, what does that show you? He says, that's psychomotor impairment. Then they asked the $1.2 million question, would anyone with that degree of psychomotor impairment have the capacity to make decisions about themselves? The signature on the form was the proof of the malpractice. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. I rest my case. <laughs> Sign over the chick.
Okay, then we did August 2007, and I've got to tell you, from my point of view, the most requested CD iPod version that we've ever done is this August 2007, which is where Greg basically went over those things that you can do to create an environment which reduces your medical legal risk, and it's soft science. It's just about being nice to people. So here are some of the elements. First of all, meet the expectations of your patients. So the first and most important thing is to create a great first impression. And so from when the patient first arrives through the emergency department door, they must feel like that you give a crap, that everybody's ramped up to help you, and some of those issues then is to dress professionally. Come out in a white coat and make sure it's clean and do that stuff that your mother would tell you to do if you're going out to an important meeting that's really difficult for the new generation of doctors to understand. But what we talked about there is that you're not looking after 16-year-olds with long hair that are skateboarders most of the time. You're looking after people that are probably on average age in the emergency departments, much older than sort of the average person on the street. And they have an expectation that you are a doctor if you are having a white coat that's clean and you look professional. I pointed out that when the AMA did its studies about physician dress and that sort of thing, it was pointed out that people from all walks of life thought professionals ought to look the same way, that professionals ought to look like professionals, and they ought to do the best they can to look like a professional. Now, the next thing you talked about is they should look professional, and then you should do the simple things. Introduce yourself. It's so easy to just run in there and start talking to the patient and never introduce yourself and act like you care. Even if you don't care, act like you care. This is a show, baby. I tell every one of my physicians, I can't change what's in your heart. Remember the old opening to the Green Hornet? Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? I don't know and I don't care. I only care about how you behave. And if you behave well, that's what the patient sees. And that's what we ought to concentrate on. Saying your name, telling them who you are, thanking them for coming. This is so hard to understand. Give me a break. Well, then what we need to do is develop systems that makes the patient get seen quickly. Patients like to get seen fast. Having been a patient in the emergency department, having taken friends in the emergency department, the single best thing you can do to make people feel like you care is that you get in there quickly. So Rick talks about this a lot. You want to get from the door to the provider as fast as possible, and that will significantly reduce your risk. And by the way, there's not universal agreement on this issue. Talking to certain people from the nursing side of the issue, they want to do point A, they want to do point B. My feeling is this. Patients came here to see the physician. Anything that moves you from arriving at the place to my getting to examine you is the best thing possible. And you know what? People will mouth this sort of thing, but when it comes down to actually changing systems and departments, good luck. You've got a lot of people who honestly believe there ought to be three levels of providers before the doctor gets to see them. Well, now there's all of these waiting room cases where people have died in the waiting room and people have gone home from the waiting room who had abdominal pain. Nobody even knew they were pregnant, delivered a baby at home kind of thing. There is some egregious cases out there. Certainly, we don't want our ERs to be you know, unfortunately in that position. So we're looking at the short door to provider time, 30 minutes or less. And if you can't get him out of the waiting room, one of the other things we talked about is knowing who's in the waiting room. Exactly. Um, just whipping around you, the nurse practitioner, somebody knows what's going on out there, tell people how long the wait is, give them an idea, just give them the feeling that there is somebody who is behind the big black door that gives a poop and wants to help them out and says, look, we've had four traumas and we're going to get to you as soon as we can. I see you, Mrs. Smith. I see you, Mr. Smith. These very simple things. By the way, sometimes the profession does damage to itself by saying things, oh, well, 
everybody with a potential stroke should be seen in five minutes or 10 minutes for this and that. The truth of the matter is in busy emergency departments, sometimes you can see them just fine that way. Other nights, it's a disaster. There's also an attitudinal problem in all of the staff that when my 10 beds or my 12 beds are full, we're full. No, we're not. You can set somebody on a chair. You can put them here or there. You can do other things. And I'll tell you, some of the worst fights I've had about get them back because I don't want them sitting out there. This is, I know I'm an anal compulsive. My children will tell you that. My wife will tell you that. I'm an anal compulsive. I pace. I want to see those patients because I know the one that I'm worried about is the one I haven't even seen yet that's going south. So other things we talked about in this sort of environment of making people feel better is make sure the place is clean. They did studies on airlines and if they didn't clean up one side of the aisle and they cleaned up the other side of the aisle they got totally different responses as to whether the airline was safe and whether it was good and it's no different in the emergency department right make sure it gets clean this is a system issue remember that the patients and the families have ears be very careful when you're in the common areas that those curtains don't stop the sound going through so be very very careful about what you say and how you say it particularly as it pertains to the other patients but also when you're just chatting about what you did on the weekend when they're over here lying in pain and you're talking about I went to Disney and it was great and there's a 10 minute conversation going on they feel like you're not doing any work so this is something you have to be constantly vigilant of and you all have to talk to each other about it because we all fall into this trap we repeated the Disney World model you've never seen Snow White sitting down feet kicked up having a cigarette it would ruin the magic of the Magic Kingdom she's got a place where she goes to do that And I'm sure that you need a place to go to vent your spleen and to have a pizza and that sort of thing. But the patients have to think that when you're in the department, you're concentrating on patient care. Aside to that is stay off the phone in front of the patients. You should not be talking to your stockbroker, to your kids, to this and that in front of those patients because they believe when you're on the phone, you're not on their case. Don't eat in the patient care areas. This is part of that professionalism, wear a white coat, be clean shaven. Don't eat in the patient care areas. It's considered unprofessional by most patients. Don't work too many hours. So if you want to be nice to your patients, the best thing you can do is to be nice to yourself. And being nice to yourself doesn't involve doing 20 18-hour shifts a month and then expecting to like human beings. I want, if there's anybody who's listening who actually thinks that their appeal to the patients gets better after the 10th or 12th hour... Please write to us and tell us how you do that. Because what I know is, when I'm in the first few hours, I'm the nicest guy in the whole world. As it's getting near the end of the shift, then you fall into, yeah, what do you want sort of attitude. And as soon as you do that, you've just abrogated all of the positive things you've done to make this go well. I like one of the things that you said in this tape a lot, which is presumptively apologize for the wait time. And Greg said, look, I go and see the patient, I say, I'm sorry that you had to wait. But doctor only had to wait three minutes. I'm sorry it was three, I wish it was two. So no matter what the wait time is, you can always lead with that. Have you ever seen a patient who said, doctor, I didn't expect it for a half hour. I've got important things to do here on my phone. Get out. I've never (laughs) seen that patient. When I walk in and they're on the phone and they're watching TV, I say, it's time now. And 100% of the time they say, God, it's only been 10 minutes this time. I can't believe it. They love prompt care. One of my friends literally yesterday took their nine-year-old to the emergency department. It was very slow. They went straight in. He said, this is a non-medical person. It was the greatest ER experience I've ever had. I went straight back. I saw the doctor. They did an x-ray. We're out of there in 30 minutes. It was wonderful. 
He didn't care that the diagnosis was completely wrong. But <laughs> the experience was all that mattered, and he thought it was great. So yes. the more we can do that, the better. Another thing we've suggested here is that you review the chart before you get to the patient. You don't want to look stupid in front of the patient. So review the chart, review anything you can in a reasonable time frame before you get there. Then you sound smart in front of the patient. And then in terms of patient satisfaction surveys, getting rid of people's pain as fast as you can, making sure they've got as much privacy as much as possible, and communicating. It's all about communication. Giving them updates every time you walk by. And it really is important to be a patient or to go with somebody who's in the emergency department a few times, or even if you're waiting for your car to get fixed. Just tell me what's going on. I don't care if you crap to me, but just every 10 minutes or so, tell me what's going on. I don't know what your experiences have been, guys, but I've given hundreds of talks around the country, and everybody wants to complain about press gaining. Now, the truth of the matter is, press gaining is an open book test. There's only five questions. <laughs> I never thought about that one. <laughs> it is an open book test. We know what they're going to ask. So the smart department understands what they're going to hear. If you're closing the curtain, why don't you say, I'm closing the curtain for your privacy? Because one of the questions in the emergency section is, did they attend to your privacy? Ask, can I do something for your pain? Even if they don't have any pain. Even if they don't have pain. Can I give you pain and then take anyway. it away? <laughs> but the point is, everybody ought to know those five questions. This is what they're going to say because that's how you're graded. Now, you and I can argue about the science of Prescani. Is it thin statistically? Well, I think, I think that's an understatement. But the point is, why don't you win the game instead of lose it? And if you don't think, whether you believe in it or not, I promise you there's somebody in your administration who's looking at those numbers every month and wants to know why you're not in the 95th percentile. Let's move on to September 2007. There were some medical issues starting out that issue. Thrombolytics and stroke was discussed, one of our favorite topics. Oh. The issue here really is informed consent, not whether an individual physician believes in it or not. Every patient needs to be presented with the pros and cons. Here's the numbers. 12% got better. 6% got worse. You got to paint the picture in something that is proportionately understandable. It's not like 90% got better. Most suits are for fair to give thrombolytic therapy. And now we got a problem because now the window is up to four and a half hours, which we'll talk about in a tad. Whether thrombolytics is the standard of care or not is debatable. Some people say it absolutely is. And in fact, some people say you don't even need to get a consent because it's so clearly part of the standard of care. Well, obviously, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Those people own stock in the company, by the way. You need to know the exclusionary criteria. That's extraordinarily important. And now the exclusionary criteria have been expanded because if you look at ECAS 3, which is the study that allowed them to extend this to four and a half, there are some additional exclusionary elements in there. I don't have time to list them all. Get ECAS 3. Make sure that you understand the exclusionary criteria. The clock's running, but unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you view it, we go in from three hours to four and a half. Call and help. Transfer quickly to stroke centers. One of the major assertions in lawsuits is that you dilly-dallied and you caused the person to miss the opportunity to get this miraculous therapy. So you have to move quickly. In fact, the phrase in lawyers is, the window of salvation has closed. <laughs> And basically, they say if your hospital has a stroke protocol, follow it, follow it. Next was unscheduled return visits, a great opportunity to screw up. Everybody knows that. The greatest impediment to a correct diagnosis is a prior diagnosis. 
I might give you credit for that too, yeah. Greg. That that's, might be your phrase there. Well, Rick, hits the truth. When they come back in the second time, there's an attitude shift in the department. And it starts to say, yeah, what are you doing back again? And what it should be is, gee, I'm glad you came back. Now we may be able to find out what we missed the first time. So basically the idea is to look at them with fresh eyes, even a new doctor, but do not put your hat on and say, well, the diagnosis is this. It was established by my colleague, and that's wrong. One of our good friends who gave the Mills talk this year, Dan Sullivan, used the term anchoring bias. And we do come up with a diagnosis or we anchor our thoughts to a certain post and then pulling our thoughts away from that post can be incredibly difficult and there's no greater example of an anchoring bias than the second visit. Then there's the idea of three strikes and you're in. Obviously that is not black and white but the idea is if they've come back three times now for the same issue you really 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 need to be awfully careful. Oh my god I think a third time visit to me I've got to really rethink this thing. I've got to call somebody. I've got to get some help because it's hard to defend sending somebody out the third time when you've had another opportunity to take a look at the situation. And at least from my standpoint, as I look at the cases that I work on, they're always difficult cases. There are diagnoses which are extremely hard to make. But you know what? Three times is not a good thing, and let's just understand it. Next, we did an interview with Graham Billingham. Graham is the... Chief Medical Officer, the head Puba for Emergency Physicians Insurance Company. He's a wonderful friend, a great doctor. I love him dearly. Graham told us about some of the things that are going on in the world of malpractice insurance where he now lives. Well, you know, the beauty of having Graham in, besides the fact that he is a great guy and has been a friend for a long time, is he's now giving us a slice of the actual cases that his group is seeing. This isn't theory. This is what he's having to defend. And for a guy this smart, pay attention, listen to what he had to say. Number one, he said there's an increasing trend to sue for delay of care. That's basically the TPA thing, but it's not just TPA. The clock is running in a lot of these cases, and if you don't realize that and you preclude the window of opportunity to save this person or decrease their morbidity, it may be a problem. Prearranged transfer agreements, he suggests, are a good idea to facilitate moving people out in a quick way, although I wish it was as easy as saying, well, let's do it, because it's not just a hospital that you have to transfer to. It's another doctor at the other place, and in private community hospitals, getting those doctors to play ball may be an issue. Forms used to sign out AMA patients like may be used to substitute for good communication. That's something which we already talked about. It's not the form, it's the process documenting the medical decision-making process and the data that supports your diagnosis and disposition helps to defend claims of malpractice. So it's more important than the history and physical is to put down the decision process, medical decision-making at the end. Where's the data that supports this diagnosis and this disposition rather than this deposition? Here's the general rule. You should be able to cover up the impression line. I don't like the term diagnosis line. It's the initial impression line. Read the chart and come to the same conclusion. If you're not coming to the same conclusion, then what's happened is you've made a predetermination as to what the outcome is going to be. He also said, don't let operational issues catch you with your pants down. I don't think he actually said with your pants down. That was my version. Like delays in x-rays being reviewed or not having a process that will pick up the positive readings that you said were negative, the cultures and those kinds of things which are bread and butter, routine emergency medicine. Slow turnaround times for lab was another thing to consider that may be putting you and your patients in some jeopardy. And then he lastly, he said to try to limit practice variability. Good luck. 
But the fact is, I believe Epic contracted with our friend Steve Colucciello to develop guidelines for them, which they are disseminating between their physicians. This is kind of where we'd like you to be, guys. It's always easy to talk about this, but I don't care where you are, in what department. You can look at where I work, where you work, Rick. I'm willing to bet you're going to find a two to three times the difference in the ordering of studies, in the ordering of tests, in re-examination times, in holding people around the department times. We have not yet come to the point in this country where we have a uniform product. And I think the more we think about this, and by the way, I don't mean doing everything to everybody. That's exactly where we don't want to be. But there ought to be some reasonable guidelines as to what you should and should not be doing. Hey, the year was 2007. The month was October. And we were back on with the following topics. And these were hot topics. Number one, patients in police custody. I'll tell you right now, when you're picking charts off the rack, the last one you want to see is allergic to Haldol, beaten up by the police, and the police are with him in a room. Anybody like those cases? No. But you got to deal with them. So we went and reviewed three big Supreme Court cases of the United States. I mean, these are the big guys, the Supremes, have <laughs> talked about certain activities. Number one, in Rokum versus California. This is where the police had an emergency doctor put in an NG tube forcefully to obtain evidence from the stomach because he was swallowing rocks of cocaine. It was concluded, by the way, by the Supreme Court that forcefully shoving a tube into someone's stomach offended the sensibilities of the court. So it seems that you cannot, even with the police begging you to do it, shove a tube down the stomach. To You're get using things. some inflammatory terms. What if a gently inserting? You say shoving. Yeah. Have you ever seen a gentle <laughs> insertion of the NG? First of all, do any of us do NG tubes anymore? I mean, it's something from the past. But as it comes to blood alcohol, completely different thoughts. In Breath Up versus Abraham, another U.S. Supreme Court case, the drawing of blood against a patient's will was upheld as a usual and customary medical procedure and not an unreasonable bodily invasion. So drawing blood is what everybody has done every day. They did not consider that unusual. Schmerber versus California carried this on because they talked about the fact that the drawing of blood is permissible against the patient's wishes if, and here's the key operative word, if we have followed due process. For everybody listening, the states vary a little bit in this. Some states have given certain law officers warrant authority to request blood. In the state of Michigan, they come in with a warrant signed by a judge. When that comes in, that's not the police requesting the blood. They've got the patient. But that is the court system ordering you to do something. You pretty much have to follow that. If the police come in with someone with an order to draw the blood, you've pretty much got to do that, and you should understand that that's part of your job. Whether an emergency physician wants to admit it or not, you are part of the legal process. You are at least a partial agent of the state, and I don't care whether we're talking about child abuse or whatever it is. You have obligations to the broader society. This is going down a difficult and slippery slope. Some states have suggested now that everyone who comes in from an auto accident, who they believe would be the driver, should have their blood drawn and positive numbers called to the police. 
Now, whether this is going to happen or not, I don't know, but it is definitely an idea and a concept whose time may have come. By the way, the patient does not own parts of their body that are discarded. If you vomit, if you have a stool, if you urinate, and we take that, I'm sorry, you don't own that anymore. This comes from an extension of RICO laws, which says the police have a right to search your trash. Why? Because it was discarded into the general stream of the public. Stream? The stream. You liked that one, didn't you? Of the public. I like to keep uh, my urine in jars like Howard Hughes. Well, Howard could maybe get away with it because he kept it in jars, but most of us, you know, if you're not urinating and it goes into the public stream of things. Number three in this era, we pointed out that comatose patients can have samples obtained and because we need that material to make diagnoses. The police have a perfect right, and if we do alcohol levels, panels, things like that, they can have it, but they have to come back with a warrant for that information or they can subpoena a copy of the medical chart. Having this information is part of the usual and necessary workup of patients. People have tried to come back and say, well, I was out of it, so they had no right to take my blood. All of those fail. If you do not have capacity and we need to determine what the problem is, go ahead and do it. That's not the issue. If the police want it, they have to go through a process to get that information, and that's important. Other information, by the way, off the chart, the police cannot compel you to give every bit of information off the chart. However, there are certain set-aside diagnoses where the police can command your information, your ideas, and those have to do where you are the arbiter in uh, social interactions. For example, the question of child abuse. Do you have an obligation? Yes, you do. In most states, it is a misdemeanor for a physician, nurse, school social worker, not to report usual and customary signs and symptoms of child abuse. You have a duty to report, and you ought to understand that, and mandatory reporting laws are the norm in the United States at this point in time. Every department ought to have a list, a book, which lists the state laws and what you are required to report. No one argues with the fact that gonorrhea and syphilis and those sorts of things are going to be reported. It's a part of the natural process. You do, by the way, have some obligation to say to the patient when you're treating their gonorrhea, you realize this will go to the public health agencies. If there's anyone you need to talk to, i.e. your wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, do it now because someone will be contacting them to follow up on these matters. I think that you probably stop a lot of social unhappiness with that sort of thing. We got into a discussion also about the concept of just drunk. Mm. There are certain patients who I don't care where you are or how you're working. There is a certain innate prejudice and they always hide something else. I can't tell you the number of patients who are quote unquote just drunk who I saw in the morning taking over from another physician as they're drying out. You'd be amazed at the disease processes, the broken ribs, the fractured wrists, all these things they didn't have the night before. My suggestion is this. If you are drying someone out, if you are watching them improve, re-examine them at some point in time just to make sure that when they did have capacity, they were able to voice complaints 
about their various injuries. I don't know anyone who, during a time of, let's say, over-imbibing, and this crowd would never do that, (laughs) but you'll twist an ankle, you'll turn this, you'll do that, and in the morning, somehow you remember what happened. The most frightening of these cases is the person who has substantially altered level of consciousness, but who is obviously intoxicated, and you're just going to wait for them to wake up, and four or five hours later... They haven't woken up, and you've lost the opportunity to rapidly diagnose this intracranial process, and it's it's really a two-edged sword. Oh, it's absolutely a two-edged sword, and when a patient has got any finding, if they're not waking up, if things aren't going right, scan them, because I don't know any disease process where being intoxicated is protective of getting another disease process. Withdrawal. What? Withdrawal. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing is, we talked about pejorative terms. As we got into the drunk patient, we were talking about terms that should never appear on charts. To say that someone is a beached whale, and we use that as an example, we had a chart where someone was (laughs) described as fat slob. This is the sort of thing which, if that chart ever has to go to a jury, look at the average jury. They have fat slobs. They have people. Don't get into that name-calling because it never does you any good. By the way, as soon as you said five foot six inch, three hundred and ten pound white male, you've kind of said it all, haven't you? I mean, what is the point you're trying to make at this moment in time? And here was the rule we left it, which is if your mama wouldn't be proud that you wrote that note, don't say it. I had one of those immigrant moms who, if she ever caught you doing something like that, she'd have slapped you around. And you know what? Mom was right. Be nice. Because you can convey everything you want in a professional manner and not enrage anybody by doing it. A couple of other things we mentioned very quickly. It was important that somebody who have blood alcohol taken, do you have to take another blood alcohol to let them go home? The answer was, no, you don't. If it's been reasonable time interval, and the key in discharging people with drugs and alcohol is, are they improved? Could they take care of themselves? The other thing is the great debate is now you've got somebody whose alcohol level is down and they're not right. It's the discharge examination which is key, not blood levels. By the way, their blood level could be down and their subdural be bigger. By the way, did you also do a Vicodin level? Did you do a Percodan level? They could still have plenty of drugs on board simply because their blood alcohol is now down Don't use that as the criteria for discharge. It should be, are they now back to an estate where they can be protective of themselves and do not constitute a danger to others? Well, you know, I'm not a big fan of drawing blood alcohols pretty much under any circumstances, but the idea here is if you drew it, there is a pretty much straight-line metabolism of alcohol so that people will know approximately what the alcohol level is when this person left the building. So the idea here is, is that okay or not? I think that it's a mistake. I think it sets you up for criticism. I think it's extraordinarily important to make it clear that this person is capable to go at home by your clinical examination. There's no ataxia. There's no slurred speech. That, 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 that. The brother's going to pick him up. All of these kinds of things make it sound like what you've done is reasonable, despite, you know, the blood alcohol maybe, you know, 30 or something like that. And we're also talking about like 0.8. 0.8 is about driving a car. It's not about you just walking out the door. Well, let's get to the interview we had that month was with a friend of Rick's, Sandy Mahan, 
who was the former director of risk management with Beta Healthcare Group. And she made a lot of good points. This is a woman who actually has to follow and watch the cases, settle, pay the money. And she made a lot of good points, Rick, in that interview. One was the fact that failure to diagnose and failure to treat still remain the main sources of claims. I thought it was interesting for her to comment on brain-damaged, brain-injured patients. When we were talking about that time interval in saving patients, if it's a brain-injured patient, and I think that's true, too, with the cervical spine injuries, for her group, it was averaging about $6 million in an award. These are the biggies. These are people who are going to live the next 20 years with feeding tubes and someone having to turn them every four hours. These are big money cases. We also talked a little bit about failure to diagnose infections and the fact that now that this is the new current rage in emergency medicine, and my prejudice has to come out here, I don't think we've shown that anything besides lots of water and early antibiotics works, but it's now the great infection protocols that are going to save everybody. Certainly that's the impression in the public. Would you agree with that, Rick? Well, there is this idea of the sooner the better. And our group settled a case for $50,000, which was all about when were the petechiae seen and how quickly did you give antibiotics. And it was our position that a jury of laymen would assume the quicker the better, despite the fact that we had testimony that would say, frankly, by the time you see antibiotics, these people, they're dead. Well, there's always a rage or a current vogue in any industry. And I think that these treatment bundles with regard to infection have come along and probably the old adage which we talked about was nobody should be sent to the floor with an infectious disease diagnosis without their first antibiotics being given. They don't know anything upstairs that we don't know about the giving of antibiotics. If they believe that we gave the wrong antibiotic, they can do what? They can give another dose. But you know, I rarely see that debated in legal cases that you should have used ceftriaxone and not this one or that one. The truth is, it's time of reasonable suspicion to first antibiotic, which is being debated. And it's rare that the choice of antibiotic makes a big point. I think that Sandy also pointed out that the limitations on physicians with our current overcrowding situations is only going to get worse, not better, and that this is a factor in medical legal cases. Because when you have 15 beds full and 12 in the waiting room, somebody is going to be the 12th to be seen. And I think it's pretty well been shown that the triage or the initial discussion frequently can miss severe disease. When someone says they have a sore throat, that doesn't mean it isn't a severe problem. That's just the initial impression we put down on the chart. She made the point, by the way, that, Rick, I know you like to talk about it, the fact that electronic medical records may have the potential to help us, but they're a double-edged sword. There could be a physician spending too much time with the record and not enough time taking care of the patient. Well, also, those records have a problem in terms of creating narratives that make sense. It's all this macro, 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 macro. Yeah. She pointed out as well, again, the anchoring bias, the inadequate workup of frequent flyers or perceived drug seekers is problematic. Because you've seen that person in five times before doesn't mean they don't have something real this time. And what I try and talk to the residents about is each time they show up, you have a usual and customary routine for looking at back pain. There are questions you ask. 
You ask about urine. <laughs> you ask about dysesthesias and paresthesias and that sort of thing. You check their back. You check them for sensation in the groin area or in the perirectal areas. It's when you don't do these things that you miss hidden disease. And we'd like to think that being a drug seeker is protective of having another illness. I don't think it is. She, she also a good point. said, how doctors think. Have you guys did that? You're, no, I didn't do that. I, I didn't, didn't do, it. do that either. <laughs> but uh, she's recommended it. Maybe we ought to think about that. Yeah, yeah, zero yeah, yeah. for three. Okay, yeah, okay yeah, zero for three. And Mel, what do you think about November? November 2007. What was this about? Well, actually, it was about a very interesting topic, not so much for me, but for lots of people out there, and it was about the private patients in the emergency department. In my emergency department, there are no private patients. Well, there was one once, but you killed him in the waiting room or something and stripped him down for money. And so the point made here is that all patients coming to the ED need to be registered, have a medical screening exam by the emergency physician or the other primary care doc, and this is really important if you're in a community hospital and Mr. Smith, who's the doc down the road, says, look, I'm just going to come in and see this kid and don't worry about him. Just put him in the corner and I'll do everything. Well, the important point that we made on that is that you're the ER doc. You're on. It's assumed legally that you're going to have control of that department. And just because somebody sends in their private patient doesn't mean you shouldn't know about them. You should know about every single patient in there. Now, I don't think it meant that you need to do a full history exam and do your own work up on that patient, but you need to be able to reasonably say, look, I saw that patient, they look good, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith, the doctor, is looking after them right now, and that's fine with me. I think we made the point there that you have an obligation on your real estate to know who's on your real estate. And when they've taken vital signs and the door shuts, what you don't want is somebody getting worse in one of those rooms. And my usual technique by this time in our place Nobody expects that's going to happen. They know we're going to see them and bill them and do the usual things. But if you walk in and the patient says, oh, my doctor's going to meet me, the obvious answer to that is you know what you want your answer to be, which is, yeah, and monkeys are going to fly out of my butt too. <laughs> but the truth is what you can say and always ease the situation is to say, I know Dr. Smith is coming in, but he likes me to kind of get you started just so that he has some information to work on when he arrives. I work with him all the time. See, that they'll buy because a lot of these people do want their private doctor. That's fine. I guess I haven't seen one in the department in years, but you know, I think you should not start a fight that you don't need to start with these patients. But the bottom line is nobody should be hidden in a room that you don't know about in your department because bad things happen. Well, that's the next sort of important point we made on that tape was that the other reason you need to know about them besides a legal problem, is the fact that every now and then these people come in, they crash and burn. And there's nothing worse than walking into the room going, I have no idea who this person is, why they're here, what's going on. Just make yourself aware of them from that point of view as well. So this is absolutely key. Then uh, what we talked about is there any delay or concern regarding the arrival of the PMD. The emergency physician should start treatment. So somebody comes in and they're sick and they say, look, my doctor's coming, they'll be here soon. The person's got an ectopic pregnancy. And their blood pressure's going down and down and down. It's not defensible morally, legally, ethically to say, but their doctor was coming and I was waiting for them. You've got to get busy on these patients. You've got to start. There is this expectation within the medical community, within the legal community, that you are going to do the right thing. And the right thing is obviously to say, yes, he's coming, but until he gets here, I'm taking over because you're sick, Mrs. Smith. Well, we were talking in that discussion, as I remember, about this was like the play Waiting for Godot. Eventually, he'll arrive, I suppose, but Godot never arrives in the play. 
And that's the way it is with somebody's private doctor. If you're sitting there watching someone go downhill, shame on you. You can't do that. That's not a reasonable thing to do. Just go ahead and start the therapy. And if he wants to bitch to the executive committee or something, that's fine. But the bottom line is you only have one person who you're responsible for, the patient. Get a life. You cannot make decisions sort of in retrospect and say, well, I should have done this or that. You know what? If they're sitting there, they're your patient. Just do it. And we also talked about the fact that you may not end up charging the patient, but you should generate a chart. And this is really important. There may be times when you say, look, we screwed up and we're not going to charge you on this. But you should still write a chart. Just because you're not going to charge somebody for whatever reason, the private patient's coming in, or you've seen the patient three times and made a mistake, you should always write a chart and the billing can be worked out later. You will not have protection for that visit. In most emergency malpractice insurance contracts, unless you have made a record, no record, no insurance. I just want to make sure that we say that five times for everybody listening. No paper, no record. Why would the insurance company then lend you the protection of their money? I don't understand that. Now, another big issue that comes up a lot, and I hear a lot of my colleagues that are in pro practice talk about, what about when you want to admit the patient, but the private doctor on the end of the phone disagree about whether the patient should be admitted or not? And our summary of a fairly long discussion about that was just be clear of one thing. This patient is in front of you and they're your patient. You should do what you believe to be the right thing. And remember, and Greg tells us this story many times, that when you're in court, the response of the physician who said, send home that person with chest pain when things go bad is always the same. If I only had have known, if the immense physician just had explained it a little bit better, of course I would have admitted the patient. They will throw you under the bus. Absolutely. And to some extent, we should expect that sort of thing is going to happen. So here's the way you do it. When you're talking to the person, say, this is what I want done. If you want something else done, maybe you have to come in and see your patient. Because, you know, in the country bars, when they're about to close, they say, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. (laughs) And I think that's right. If Joe Smith doesn't want to admit him, that doesn't mean you can't call Johnny Jones, another doctor, about the admission. And it also doesn't mean, and I've done this before, it's one in the morning, we'll keep until seven, see how they do. Is that the best thing? No, but you know what? It's better than abandoning somebody. And here's the only question you have to ask. If that was my mother, would I admit her or send her home? If you can't send home somebody else's mother and you wouldn't send home your mother, you know what? Then it's your job to get this patient admitted. Well, there's also a more fundamental issue. The doctor on the phone has not examined the patient. Of course. You have examined the patient and gotten the history. He is working on inadequate information, as would be determined by any jury. You never saw them. You didn't see them. This doctor says they look bad. How do you know? Yeah. So I think that that makes it pretty clear that you've got the ace. Right. Let's go through some of these next points fairly quickly. What if the private doctor comes in and is intoxicated? Then what you need to do is you have an obligation to act. You need to pull that doctor aside. You need to say, look, I need to take over the care of this patient. You can't just ignore it. If they've just come back from a party and they're stumbling in there, you've got to do something. By the way, I think we had a little discussion about the fact, had each one of us seen somebody or knew of somebody on the staff who was impaired, either by use of drugs or alcohol or something like that. This study has actually been done by the AMA. Probably half the doctors in the United States admitted to knowing somebody who wasn't functioning correctly. Very few of them had actually turned that physician in. And I think it takes great courage 
But the doctor who would have courage would walk over to Dr. So-and-so and say, John, either you and I are going up to the administrator together to work out a plan for you, or I'm going up myself. Which one is it going to be? Another thing we talked about is PMDs sort of calling the ER and using us as an urgent care without ever seeing the physician. Look, I'm sending this patient in. I want you to do a CBC, give them three shots, call me with the results and send them home. We just can't do that anymore. Those days are over. MTLA other rules require that we do a medical screening exam. And so I think we've already talked about that. They're your patients until you're comfortable with them. Yeah, and in all truth, I think our colleagues recognize that. We're seeing so little of this now compared to we did 20 and 30 years ago when they didn't have respect for us in the department. Now, our young guys are pretty good. They're pretty hot. And now that all these young internists have trained with our people, they understand they're going to take care of the situation. I think this is going away, particularly with the independent requirement that you evaluate the patient. The next thing is writing admission orders, and the summary of that long discussion was this is a pretty dangerous thing to do. If you're writing orders for patients that are getting sent upstairs, first of all, your default should be, I don't do that. The default should be, have you call the orders into the nurse upstairs? So in general, the idea was you shouldn't do that. And I think, again, this is something that is done less and less, us writing these long scrolling notes, because then we're taking on the responsibility of the inpatient stay, which is really not our job. It's dying, but it's not dead. Right. I do see this, and it is a problem. If you want to write a transfer order that says maintain the oxygen, the antibiotic, and the IV till they get to the floor and then call Dr. So-and-so, that's different than writing continuing orders which are going to be carried out on the floor. Right. This idea that these holding orders are really not really orders, they're not orders. You know what you just said there. The idea is that you're going to allow a physician to not come in and you're going to take care of that patient by the, these orders that you've written for hours thereafter. That's not the same as call Dr. So-and-so when the patient arrives on the floor. Those aren't holding orders. That's a joke. Yeah, absolutely. That's a joke. The other thing is I've heard this in court and let me just repeat this for anybody out there where they've said doctor so-and-so er doctor so-and-so so you have permission you have privileges to admit patients you don't do you so this writing of inpatient orders is this sort of a hobby of yours doctor i have your privilege sheet right here would you show me on that sheet where you have the privilege to manage inpatients at this hospital the plaintiff's counsels occasionally point out things to us where we have egg on our face, and that's one of them. Let's keep it moving here. Then we talked about Good Samaritan laws, and let's keep this very brief. You can't guarantee that you're going to be in two places at once. Having contracts that says, I'm going to look after the emergency department and look after in-house emergencies is generally a bad idea. But we understand that sometimes you've got to do that, and sometimes you have to do it under a Good Samaritan law. Look, we're not going to guarantee that we're going to be there, but if we're there in the hospital and something bad's happening, and I can... We'll go and help out. It's important, Greg noted, that if we're going to do it and try and be protected some way under a good Samaritan law, that we don't then go and send a bill for $2,000 and then expect that if something bad goes wrong, we're going to be protected under good Samaritan laws. If you're going to be a good Samaritan, you do it for free. If you want to do it and charge for it, then you have to accept full responsibility that you could get sued for that. We actually made several other points that there were three parts to good Samaritan, no matter where it is in the country. Number one, there was no exchange of monies or other goods or services for this. You didn't bill them. Number two, it was not a prearranged part of your duty. If it is a part of something you took on, and I made the example of somebody who donated their time at a rock or a folk festival who had gotten sued, 
They chose to be there in a medical capacity. It wasn't a surprise. It's not like finding an accident at the street. And the third element of that is there was no previous doctor-patient relationship. Now, we can sit around here all day and talk about this, but there's a final. That is, if you come upon somebody sick on the edge of the road, an accident, in an airplane, something like that, you know what? Go ahead and treat them. That's fine. That meets all the criteria. And then we did an interview with Val Warhop, and Val is the CMO and the head of risk management for Emergency Medical Associates, which is a big group here in L.A. Emergent Medical Associates. Oh, That's different, you know. Why is but that? But they, they've used my initials, EMA. Everybody I never gave EMA. them permission to use EMA. <laughs> Everybody uses EMA. <laughs> so here were the key points. Shift transfer is very risky. In fact, in this month's Annals of Emergency Medicine, there's a number of papers saying this is a big deal, transferring patients to each other. We need to be very careful. We need to get real-time reporting of critical values. You need to work out systems that get that done. You can't be getting these critical values a day after the person gets there. A list of conditions that require the evaluation by a physician should be developed when working with physician extenders. And in fact, we've talked about physician extenders a lot, but you need to know what they're doing, what they're seeing, and have some protocols that develop beforehand. And then borders in the emergency department are a problem. And their PMD, once they take over care, need to be writing notes for them. You need to be getting upstairs as quickly as possible because having them sit there for day after day is a very high-risk group of patients. And finally, one of the most important things was the obstetric patient, which brings up another issue. So somebody comes in, minor trauma. They then have some belly pain and they're, say, 36 weeks pregnant. We send them up to the OB floor to do a cardiotocogram. And we don't know how to read that, so somebody there reads it. We have to remember that these patients are still ours until we formally discharge them. So if we formally discharge them from the ER and send them away for other care and they get accepted by a physician, that may be one thing. But just sending them up there and having them sent home by an OB nurse, you're still on the hook. Absolutely. So you have to have a system that is clear who's in charge of the patient now. Maybe they should, should come back and you get seen. You see them again yourself before you send them home. But make sure that's clear. Don't just assume that they're going to get sent home by a physician. Some physician has to take charge of this. It cannot be the OB nurse's Occasionally, they will call the OB-GYN who's involved with the case, talk to them, that sort of thing. I don't have a problem with that. But if they're just sending them home, you're the last person with MD after your name that's going to be involved in this care. Just assume you're going to be a part of the process. Alrighty, December 2007, the heading was The Real Causes of Malpractice Suits. It's a little weak to tell you the truth. This is a real hodgepodge of advice. The first points were, don't let people who have multiple chronic illnesses distort your focus on why are they there today. It's so easy when people have chronic back pain, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia and the like to say, well, it must be part of that disorder and it's just an exacerbation of that. Don't let a patient's chronic conditions then screw you up. This is about professional blindness. You've got the blinders on, you focus, they give you this list of chronic diseases, that's what you're focusing on and you're not willing to consider others. This is the same thing, what is that phrase that, you know, Tell me that phrase again where we talked about you're not open to new information. Oh, anchoring bias. Thank you very much. Yes. Yes. Don't be prejudiced by derogatory marks by the staff regarding a patient's complaint or frequent visits. They can just set up this environment where they expect you to do very little. And if you start doing a workup, they're going to roll their eyes and say, oh, you know, come on, this patient had 10 workups already. The fact of the matter is you still are responsible. There may be something wrong. Well, the toughest thing is to understand that I understand that the staff isn't happy. The point is, the ultimate responsibility for that case isn't theirs. We don't take a vote. 
you get to decide what the workup is. And if you genuinely believe they need workup, sometimes you have to be unpopular with the staff. The other thing that was in that issue was the idea of don't prejudge the patient who requests narcotics. As soon as they ask for something by name, the first reaction is you're not going to get that kind of thing. Well, How would you find out about um, meperidine? The joke is... If a patient comes in who's on various medications and they don't know the name and dose, say, what's the matter with you? You don't know your medicines, you don't know your dose. But if they come in and say, by the way, I'd really like a Vicodin, then all of a sudden the lights go on, amp, 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 drug seeker, drug seeker, and they know the dose. I want two of Dilaudid or something like that. Oh, that's a bad sign, right? Well, the funny thing is in every other disease... We love it that they actually know the dose of their medication. Yeah, so the back pain that the patient is requesting more pain medications for could be that epidural abscess that you're about to miss. Right. Be cautious with back pain patients in general. Know the red flags. In fact, to tell you the truth in back pain, that's all you need to know. Everything else will go away. So it's about low-grade fever, trauma, even low-grade trauma of the elderly. They fall off a chair. You know, fall off the toilet, they can break their back. Cancer, immunocompromised, neurologic abnormalities that we're supposed to be watching for. Those are the things that you focus on. It is about identifying the red flag conditions. Actively be aware of people who push your buttons. The wise guy, the whiner, the patient with a litany of complaints, the patient with vague complaints, the knowledgeable patient. You knows too much. He knows more about the disease entity than you do. That's an interesting concept that the patient can intimidate you Because if they do have a rare disease, there's no question they know more about it than you do. And so the technique, we talked about the technique of getting a hold of that, which was when they come in with that much knowledge, what you say is, thank you very much for letting me know. This is an unusual disease. I'm certainly going to need your help. I remember I had a child with Fanconi's type 2 come in and... You got a 2A? (laughs) You know the difference between 2A and 2B? And I said to the mother, I said, well, you obviously know a lot about this. She says, yeah, by the way... She pulls out of her purse. Here's what the doctors at the university thought should be done when they're having these symptoms. And she handed me this beautiful thing that says what they do with this. I said, thank you, God. This is wonderful. Because <laughs> exactly. then I didn't have to go in the back room and read what Fanconi's was. You know, the other thing is if you have the luxury of working with other physicians, involve them in the tough cases. Ask them for an opinion. What do you think about this x-ray? It's really stupid to have an artificial barrier when there's a two sets of brains in a tough case. They'll appreciate it when you help out them and vice versa. Right. Acknowledge to yourself when you are in a bad mood and that you're acting curtly or shortly uh, with patients. You're just setting up an environment that, in fact, is not going to help you at all. And some days we are in a bad mood and you just have to actively say, you know, I can't piss off the patients. They'll sense it and just be aware of it. By the way, we all know when it's happening. Right. You know when the words come out of your mouth they were wrong. In fact, you know they were wrong before they came out of your mouth and you know it. I think a timeout is not a bad thing to go someplace for two minutes, straighten yourself out, take a sip, go back in and try it right. I've had that with patients where I knew I should have gone back in again to reinvent the discussion. Then there's a little bit on orthopedic cases. First of all, they pointed out that litigation in these cases usually involves minor injuries and that you didn't miss the femur. Never guarantee that a bone is not broke. That's kind of where you come from. It's better to say there's no obvious displaced fractures, but something could show up later. Consistently document the joint above, the joint below, the neurovascular thing. That's, you know, medical student 101. 
No other fractures that can be occult, yet serious, the bigger the mechanism outstretched hand, the occult hip fracture where people are still able to bear weight, but you missed it and you think it's just arthritis. Pain in the knee, which is actually referred pain from the hip, very common cause of missing hip problems. Know the nexus rules, apply them. Falls on outstretched hands. Subtle elbow fractures associated with those as well. Did you examine the joint above? You might have picked up the elbow fracture. Know the appropriate imaging studies. The CT is not the imaging study for neurologic problems. It's an MRI. If you order the wrong test, people may fault you because you just got the wrong test here. Well, in truth, what you have to do is bring the patient into your confidence about the follow-up. I don't mind if you're looking at a wrist fracture, you don't see a displaced fracture, you understand you can still have a navicular fracture, and you tell them that, splint them up, see them back. By the way, when you do see them back, then the next study is probably not a repeat x-ray, but a CT. And lastly, check the work of others who have applied splints and dressings. We know those of us who have to do billing that you have to put a note down that you've examined that thing. But honestly, we recently had an issue where the splint was put on the wrong arm and the nurse put it on the wrong arm. The doctor ordered it on the wrong arm and the patient left with it on the wrong arm. Wait a second. Let's, Let's talk about this for a minute. Why would a patient sit there and let them put it on the wrong arm? Well, the truth of the matter is that this patient had both upper extremities injured and they had both upper extremities x-rayed and everything that could go wrong did go wrong you know the passivity of patients is amazing because we have all had somewhere in our 35 or 36 year careers somebody sent to x-ray where they did x-ray something completely different and they didn't say a word about it till the patient came back so that's the end of cd1 of february 2010 which was a review of the first six months of the Risk Management Monthly Program, basically from June till December. The next CD will have the second half of that year. Well, this is the second CD of your two-CD set for February 2010, Risk Management Monthly. Remember that on the other CD, what we're doing here is reviewing the first few years of Risk Management Monthly. So on CD1, we went through basically June to December-ish. I think we start here in January. We go through the rest of 2007, going over the major points of each month as this sort of bonus session that you're getting on Risk Management Monthly. Hope you're enjoying it. Actually, I'm finding it really useful to go back and to go over again all of those topics that we've covered in the last three years. So uh, without further ado, do here are the boys. January 2008, Gregory, why don't yeah. you tell us about it? Well, Santa Claus has come and gone. We're now into 2008. It was a great Christmas, and it was even a better risk management monthly <laughs> month. If we look at the subjects that came up, these were some fun discussions and some great key points. The first thing we did was talked about trauma care and less and less trauma is happening in the United States per passenger mile. You all realize that, that the number of operations we do is less, the number of auto accident victims who are severely injured is less per mile traveled, but we make the same mistakes we've always made. And we hit some of the key concepts here. The first one was too little, too late. When someone comes in, don't be a sequential tester get to the point and here are the points can we handle this patient at our institution because if you don't do trauma don't pretend that you do trauma get them in decide and gone the best test of your system is can you pick up the phone and do you have to go shopping for a doctor 
If you're shopping for a doctor, it doesn't look good. There should be somebody on call for that trauma, and they ought to come in and do it. By the way, not every general surgeon is a trauma surgeon. Let's just be honest about it. There are some guys who shouldn't be taking trauma or can't be taking trauma, and we just have to talk about that honestly, that they should not be involved in those types of evaluations. You know, we did an abstract recently that relates to the transfer of patients, and it basically said don't do a lot of imaging. If you can't do anything about it, just send them. You will waste a lot of time doing imaging at a place where it's not going to change anything. Donald Trunke said that 30 years ago. He said, the last thing you want to get from the outside is a near-dead patient who has a thick folder full of x-rays. Why the hell would you even consider x-raying their wrist or their finger or something like that when the big issues are do they need somebody to do their chest, their belly, or their head? Those are still the big issues. If you don't call the orthopod till next day on most of these things, unless the bones are sticking out the skin, it's not. It's not the key issue here. we got to know what to do it. By the way, we talked about the fact that if the emergency physician feels that the trauma team needs to be activated, he can activate the whole trauma team. That includes the OR people and the anesthesiologist. I've got to take a second to tell a story. At my own hospital last month in December, actually, I have a 24-year-old boy who has a testicular torsion. It couldn't be clearer. I call the urologist, give him the story. He says, yeah, that's what it is. I'll be it. And two minutes later, I'm on the phone to the anesthesiologist. He said, well, okay, yeah, but, you know, we have to be activated by the surgeon to know. He didn't want to drive in. So now the urologist in there, and now he has to call the guy, and the urologist cut him a new butt about the fact that this is an obvious case, and these parents are smart people. They know about time is testicle, and they're going to remove the testicle on this anesthesiologist. I mean, come on, guys. If you know you're going to the OR, get people together and go to the OR. They shouldn't be waiting around on this thing. Another issue that we got was if you've got somebody who's getting massive transfusions, understand the whole transfusion problem. They're going to need fresh frozen plasma. They're going to need platelets packs. They're going to need these other things. Don't think that you can give people lots of blood. And that'll be enough to stop the bleeding. It won't. We also said the fact that if you have a facility and it's clear that you can't handle the issue, they should be gone as soon as possible. That was a great point in that because people often are admitted to the hospital for neuro checks or something like that. And then when you find out that you've got a neuro problem, you can't do anything about it. It makes no sense. That person should not have been there in the first place. Exactly right. If you honestly believe that there's a potential for neuro decompensation... What the hell are they doing in your 50-bed hospital where it's 100 miles from a neurosurgeon? By the way, when you have a subdural or an epidural, you don't need a genius surgeon, but you do need one. And some of those things have to be taken care of in kind of a timely manner. The last thing you want is a patient who's dilating a pupil based on a subdural, and you could have taken care of them earlier. The other thing was we made a comment on the fact that all of these protocol-based testing things the ATLS sort of stuff, you know, the trauma panel. The truth of the matter is we need almost none of those lab data right now. And failure to order that, it does not mean that you're in a breach of anything. No, of course not. The other thing is when you do call the lab, tell them what you really need, which is type-specific blood available in five minutes. Some fool, in a case I was involved in, was looking at the hemoglobins to decide whether his patient was bleeding. You know, 
as the blood pressure is going down and the pulse rate's going up, the time to equilibrate blood may be six or eight hours. The point was made that if I slit your aorta right now, the drop of the hemoglobin of the last drop is the same as the first drop. You cannot use something like this trauma panel, a hemoglobin, to decide whether the patient is actively bleeding out. All right, tell us about phone advice here, Chief. Oh, that was the worst. Here's the rule. The phone is your enemy. Stop the discussion. Nothing good happens with the phone. And if you look at emergency physicians, maybe 10, 15, up to 20% of their time is on a telephone. And they haven't thought out phone skills about what they want to accomplish. Number one, phone advice is by definition inadequate advice in most cases. If someone calls up and wants to talk about an issue of this or that, you know what? You haven't seen the patient. Half of what we get from a patient is walking in the room and looking and getting a gestalt. You've made a decision about an admitted patient in two minutes. Uh, You don't want to be too generic about this. If somebody says, I I really injured my ankle, you could say, fine, apply some ice on your way in. Well, of course. As long as you're not deferring or delaying care based on inadequate data. And I think we talked about that. If somebody said, well, I just splashed battery acid in my eye, I'd tell them to wash it out and come on in. If they told me that they'd burned the back of their hand, yeah, put something cold on it and come on in. I'm happy with all of that, but you notice that the kicker at the end of the discussion was, come on in. Why? Because I don't know what you got over the phone. (laughs) And I think we commented about a good friend of ours, all of us know Vince Verdile, who wrote those papers, those are probably 15, 20-year-old papers, about phone advice. He did two excellent papers, which are part of the database, Rick, in Emergency Medical Abstracts. And in both those papers, he had people talking, actors, actresses, giving questions to the hospital. And it was amazing how bad they were at phone advice. Yeah, these actors were prepared to give them a great story that the kid has meningitis. And in a small percentage of patients, did they get to that? They were like, oh, he's fine, give him a toll. Or we'll see him in the morning. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, some nurses would say, if he's not better in three hours and 45 minutes, (laughs) come in. Why? Because they get off in three hours and 44 minutes, so they don't have to deal with it. We're the only service industry in the country that doesn't want business. Did you ever think about that? We're the only ones who actually say, good night, nobody came in. By the way, we also talked about don't offend callers. If they call in, tell them why you can't really give phone advice. We'd love to look at you. We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Come on down. We're like the price is right. And what we want to do is say, you deserve correct care. Come on in. We'll see you. But the last thing you want to do is suggest that I can solve your problem on the phone. By the way, they always usually start out with, I have this friend. Okay, go ahead. Send the friend in. (laughs) Tell the friend to come on down. We'll be happy to take a look at you for this problem. By the way, we had a very interesting discussion in January with Sandy Mahan was with us again. our second interview. Second interview. And she's done a great job for us. And it's amazing that here's somebody who, not a doc, not working the ER, but her perceptions of what's going on are exactly the perceptions of the docs who are looking at these cases. Honestly, this is an enlightened company. I'm insured by them. They send risk management monthly to all of their insured doctors. Obviously, they're... They're a step ahead. Exactly. Right. And she also pointed out, without being prompted, you know, Henry wasn't writing the script or anything else, what she started off with, writing admission orders. 
Thank God. Yeah, some of these are duplicates of things we've covered before, right. so we should just hit the unique ones. Yep, those that are pretty nice. Yeah, she says, we don't like you guys writing admission orders from an insurance company's point of view. The other thing she says from the insurance company's point of view, we want to know when that patient was accepted and when you transferred responsibility to the other doc. The insurance people want a bright line in the sand that they can say, as of this time, the internist or the surgeon or whoever it was is in charge of this case. Because when they get into pissing and moaning in legal cases, they're going to have to try and decide who's responsible and what's going to be paid. She doesn't like this. She likes a time that says, Dr. So-and-so was contacted, he accepted the case, patient will be moved upstairs. We love that comment. Another area where she spoke was the insurers of emergency physicians need to help convince the hospitals about bad practices. And I think she was right. If you think something is not a good practice, i.e. the writing of orders, the guys not accepting the cases, get a letter from your insurance company that says the insurance company itself believes it'll be difficult to insure these groups or it'll be problem unless we have these things. She thinks the insurance company should be our advocates in getting correct care for the patient. I could kiss her for that because that really was a great line and something we should all be doing. She spoke about the time limiting of orders. I think we mentioned this. But emergency physicians should not be putting out the idea that orders they write on patients going to the floor go on forever and it should not be dependent on the further care of that patient. And she mentioned what the insurance company was advocating. And I think this is an interesting view of it is that you need to have in your hospitals, for protection of everyone, a uniform order set per diagnosis. If you're doing cardiac failure, here's the order set. If you're going to do pneumonia, here's the order set. Something that emergency medicine, internal medicine, other people have agreed upon so that we kind of know what the continuity of that care is going to be. Because she is a firm believer that this handoff between the emergency department and the follow-up physicians, people going to take care of the patients, these are gaps where the patient can fall in and have a real problem. And again, we would like to take this chance to thank Sandy for being involved in the I think we'd like to ask all these other insurance companies, what are you thinking about? Why aren't you getting this for all your docs? I mean, we're going to save you... How many cases, you know, in depositions? It's ridiculous. Yeah, I know that. But you know what? They don't believe it yet, Rick. They honestly don't. It's that was a little commercial thrown in there. I understand you know. that. We'll take that. <laughs> well, time moves on, and we move to February 2008. And February, we covered a number of different topics, but the first one is change of shifts. Now, we <laughs> did a number of different aspects of change of shift and handing patients over. And I can't remember the number. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But like 20% of the patients we see are handed from one physician to another. In our place, it's much more than that. But overall, it's somewhere about 20%. In your place, because they stay there three days. Exactly. You, know, yeah. you, you transferned one, shift, one so patient over oh, to five or six doctors. Actually, and that is not a joke. And so yeah. we know that this is an incredibly high-risk thing to do. It's an incredibly high-risk thing to do for a number of reasons. First of all, you're the accepting physician. And the last thing you want is to get there, pick up three or four of your own patients, and then have somebody hand you four more. It's like, you're killing me. So your normal response is... Well, they've already been seen by that doc. I don't have to be as thorough on those people. And that is the first problem. If you get handed over a patient, in general, you have to really start at the beginning and go through it again. Yeah, and we talked about some warning signs. Whenever anyone says, just check the hemoglobin, and if it's okay, they can go home, stop. Because there's almost no case, no problem, 
where it's just the hemoglobin. Well, in those cases, there are cases where if the potassium comes back normal, he can go home. That doctor who is leaving should fill out the aftercare and make the diagnosis and make the assumption that that test is going to be normal. And in the event that it is not, then the colleague has to pick up the case. But if you're saying, yes, the potassium is 4, that's all I did. I looked at it, and then the full responsibility is on the sending home doctor. Yeah, that's the point of this, that it is the discharging physician who is going to be the first one named in the lawsuit. It's not the guy who starts it, it's the guy who ends it. And the biggest problem we have with handovers, and I'll just be very honest about it, is we have chest pain workups going on. And if you've now done the entire workup, done everything, done two sets of zymes, you're waiting for the last set of zymes and the last EKG, then it's probably okay to fill out everything, including the discharge instructions, and sign the chart. You're giving your age away. We well, don't call them zymes anymore. <laughs> we call them markers. Markers. Yeah, markers. Well, I'm old. The is not a zyme. I understand that. It's a marker. Okay. I'm old, Rick. Thank I, you very much. I don't much. want to have anybody listening to this kind of misunderstand what we're talking about here. <laughs> mia copa, <laughs> mia maxima copa. One uh, of the other things we talked about on this, and it's easy for us to see other specialties as having the ability to throw us under the bus, but... We noted here that if there's a lawsuit and it's going for $5 million and you've handed the patient over to somebody else, even doctors within the same group will start pointing fingers. Absolutely. Uh, it wasn't me. It was, it was Rick's fault, not my fault. Right. And so you don't want to get into that circumstance. So you want to have very clear rules about how you're going to do these handovers. I think we've gotten away from that idea. There are some emergency departments went through a period where there will be no handovers. This is such a high-risk thing. You will stay until your patient's completely worked up. Unfortunately, that world doesn't exist. You know, four or five, six hours getting workups and stuff, you cannot stay around that long. So those days are gone, but there should be very clear communication about what's been done, what's expected, who's discharging the patient. And again, in this month's Annals of Emergency Medicine, there's a whole series of papers about the best way to do that. Recognize it. It's a very high-risk time. The next thing we talked about on that February 2008 tape was incident reports. And there's a couple of very important points about these incident reports. Remember that these are protected communications in most states but not in all states, and lawyers will routinely try and obtain these documents, and sometimes they're successful, and I think that goes from state to state. But when you do your instant reports, be clear that this should be about systems issues, and it shouldn't be about saying, this stupid nurse, this ridiculous doctor. You shouldn't be writing like that. It's a legal document in many cases, so treat it as a legal document, and it should be about systems issues. It shouldn't be about trying to get at somebody. And you never reference the incident report in the patient's record. Because as soon as you say in the record, incident report filed, then what you know is they have a way of getting at that information. The judges will usually bypass the state law and say, well, there's a possibility, since it's in the record, that there's something pertains to the patient. The incident report should be about the system. Johnny Jones, the x-ray tech, has had four incidents I know of where he's dropped a patient off the table. Maybe what we need is better help in the x-ray department. On the patient who they dropped off the table, what you say is, went over to the x-ray department, Mrs. Smith was put back on the cart, was re-examined, re-x-rayed, but it doesn't say that you've raised this big system issue. The patient's chart should reflect the care you gave the patient. The incident report looks at the system. And I think that we need to keep those concepts quite separate. And you're absolutely right, Mel, there are states 
where the incident report can be routinely obtained. What that means is nobody files incident reports. The next thing we talked about was email communications. Now, email is discoverable, so be very careful with email. Email is dangerous for a multitude of reasons. And putting that little thing at the bottom of your... As Tiger Woods. (laughs) (laughs) Text messages even worse. Yeah. Even putting that little thing at the bottom that says that this is for patient confidentiality and it's just between physicians, blah, blah, blah. We weren't clear on that tape, and I'm not sure if it's gotten clear in the last few years, whether that really protects you. Putting that little spiel that everybody puts, and some people have one line, some people have like a page of stuff that says, we're not sure whether that really protects you or not. So I suggest, I think we suggested, be really careful with email. Talk on the phone, email, bad. Using medical record numbers may help promote patient confidentiality. And if it's a QI issue, then take it to the QI. Do it in that protected environment. Don't do it via email. Call on the phone and have a QI meeting at your hospital. Do it that way, but don't do it via email because things can get quite ugly. And by the way, that mechanism of going through Quality Assurance Committee is good for all kinds of things. I did have an emergency physician who was, what is the phrase, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. He had a transfer in from a hospital, and he sends a blazing, I mean literally flames coming off the typewriter in those days. And what it said is, you know that you transferred another patient over here because your damn doctors are too lazy to do this and that, and he deteriorated. Well, that was sent to the president of the hospital, and that is not a protected area. Now, there was a bad outcome in that case. The letter that was sent to the president of that hospital, which eventually got into a file, cannot be considered quality assurance. It isn't. So if you really want to settle an issue, write to their quality assurance committee, use a patient number, not a name, and say, I think that this needs to be reviewed. That's all you got to do, but don't be blabbing your mouth out there about everything that may happen. And even this idea of I'll write the email and then I will send it later, I'll do a draft. Be careful. You click the wrong button, off it's gone. You thought you were applying to one person, it goes out to 100 people. I've done that a couple of times. Yeah. Very embarrassing. Be afraid of email. Sources of malpractice in the emergency department, we reviewed a paper. We started to go into the reviewing a paper a month at this point, and this was a Harvard University paper, and they talked about closed malpractice claims and really what were the causes or what were these common errors that would come up on these. And the first one was a diagnosis-related error or failure to order the right diagnostic test or do an adequate history of physical examination, and you could have guessed that. When we make mistakes, then we're probably more likely to have a suit and it's probably going to go against us in those circumstances. But some other things that came up that I thought were very interesting were inadequate supervision of trainee physicians. Just Uh, because you have residents... Does this surprise you? (laughs) Coming from a program that has 68, what is it, 68 residents? 68 residents, I think we have. I, I think that we need to stop on this for a second because... Just because they've just gotten out of a medical school does not mean that they examine well, they do this, do they that. And sometimes I think that the supervisory docs can get a little lazy about And they make assumptions that these kids know or will pick up. And sometimes you got to go back in and take a look. Here's what you can't do. When your name sits on the bottom of that chart, you cannot deny that you were involved in the care of that patient. You can't do that. I have a case took place in the Lone Star State, in which an attending physician said, well, yeah, that's my name on the bottom of the chart, and that was my federal provider number that was used to bill. But he said, I probably didn't see that case, because I would have certainly picked that up. What is he just admitted to? Fraud. Fraud. He's just admitted to billing fraud. 
that's a criminal act. You know, if you're going to bill and you're going to say that you supervise the care, supervise the care. You can't do it any other way. They also noted that handoffs were really high risk and that worksite-related issues, inadequate staffing, inadequate backup, also led to a number of these malpractices. So we know all of this stuff. Yep. Having said that, then let's talk about chaos in the emergency department. We reviewed this and said, look, we all know this. The emergency department is inherently chaotic at times. That doesn't necessarily protect you when something bad happens, that there are ways that you should deal with that. You should call in backups. You should have a system. It should be something that is followed. And if, for example, a train goes and crashes or a plane goes down, it's not unreasonable to write in medical terms and in legal terms it's the night of September 7th and I'm looking after this person right now, but I have 15 other people that have been involved in an accident which has just occurred. We're doing the best we can. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. Move on to the next patient. You know, we have to look at the fact that the U.S. healthcare system has almost no elasticity in it. I think we refer to it as surge capacity. But as was pointed out by the swine flu, some departments became overwhelmed very quickly with a 5 to 10 to 15% increase in volume, a lot of these departments can't function. If you take one the size of Mel's, which is just holding on, if we put 15% more people in that tonight, Mel, how well are you going to do? Not so well. You're not going to do so well. And I think that there needs to be some honesty about the fact that this surge capacity is going to be very difficult to deal with medically, legally. And if people think it's bad now, just wait because there's certainly going to be no more resources for this in a country which is going broke. Now, we did an interview with Ron Hellstern, who is the Senior Vice President of PSR and ED Practice Management Group, about these issues, and he said the same thing. You've got to make a distinction between acute problems that no emergency department can be expected to be prepared for, and you can write that in the chart. The plane went down outside and there's a 1,000 people out there, versus these chronic problems, and the chart is not a place to say, we're overcrowded again, there's no backup position again, blah, blah. That's just setting yourself up. There's a big difference between acute, unexpected issues that come up and chronic ongoing problems which are system issues which you need to deal with and you don't deal with those by writing nasty notes in the chart that is very high risk. Ron Helstern by the way is a terrific fellow and he writes on a lot of issues. I mean he's very good organizationally in emergency medicine and healthcare. Wrote some brilliant pieces on why emergency medicine groups fail. For any of you who are listening to this who have not read some of his pieces about why single hospital or small groups are replaced read his work it's incredibly insightful you know i think that one of the points he made here which is really interesting is that the emergency group may be expected to advise administration if they are chronically understaffed or got delivery problems and that this should be done formally in writing because the emergency physicians are disproportionately at risk for problems in the way of medical legal issues and that he thinks that this is viewed as a obligation. If you don't tell them that you have a problem down in the department in a somewhat of a formal way and then there's a problem that comes true because of what you told them, they're going to say, well, you never told us. Right, exactly. And I think that that's why the contract between the group and the administration needs to lay out what is the communication line. Who is he responsible to? Where should the director's reports go? And is there a regular meeting to pass on that kind of information? Although this sounds theoretically reasonable, you can also see that your administration getting really pissed off Mm -hmm. at you 
because you have formally complained about the staffing or the turnaround times in the department, and you have not become a team player here, Doctor. Well, this well, is I don't want to hear. This exactly. goes back to the Greeks, the slaying of the messenger. The point is, because you said it, doesn't mean that it's... Is it inflammatory? Yes. Is it the truth? Yeah, it's also the truth. It's not just us. You know, I was on the way here. NPR had a story about the Challenger disaster. You know, the Challenger blew up. It was horrible. Two engineers the night before were pleading on the phone to NASA superiors saying, do not let them take off. It's too cold. These seals will break. It could blow up. And they ignored. They ignored. said, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. And even though they did the right thing, they tried to save these people's lives, they basically were ostracized by NASA after that, pushed into jobs that they hated, and finally left the profession, even though they did the right thing. And I can see the same thing here. You're that bitchy ER group that always tells us there's a always problem. Always complaining. Right. Let's get another group. Okay, March 2008, focuses on medical error. Think of medical error as mistakes that may or may not harm a patient. Yeah, we do make errors all the time, but harm is the concern here. Errors that result in patient harm may trigger malpractice suits. Disclosure of errors is viewed as an ethical responsibility. So all the hospitals now are having these formal meetings where they tell you about the mistakes we've made, but our malpractice carriers say, yeah, that's fine, but you know, you're not helping out our case at all by doing that. I think that one of the issues that came up here is if there's a situation that you're concerned about, you should call your carrier in advance and say, listen, this is what happened. The hospital is going to have a little meeting with the family. What is your recommendations here? Yes, there should be a representative of your group. Probably not the doctor who was involved in the case, but some other physician or the director ought to be there. We spent a lot of time talking about the fact that the full disclosure policy has really taken over. Again, there are fads in medicine, things that sweep the profession, and full disclosure really has swept it. I think it's different in the emergency department than it is in an inpatient situation. In the emergency department, you frequently don't know exactly what's happened. And I don't think a good idea to have everybody go running into the patient and say, oh, we just killed grandma. Well, I don't think you know whether that's what happened. Disclosure should be done by people who are trained how to do disclosure, who have actually looked at the facts of the situation and know in advance what they're going to say and what kind of things they're going to do to help that family. An apology does not, in and of itself, express liability. Very I'm sorry concept. is not the same as I'm guilty. Those are different phrases. The number is now up to about 35 states that have I'm sorry laws. And if you go onto the website, sorryworks.net, that's just one of a whole bunch of sites that give you instruction on how to say it to give you the update on the laws because these laws are very very variable by state in terms of what you can say on what time frame this saying needs to occur so this to say well we have an i'm sorry law does not mean a blanket authority to do whatever you want remind our listeners what an i'm sorry law is right well it's a law that basically says that if you follow these parameters it is not admissible in court and it cannot be used against you but I did read up on some of this stuff, and they're very variable, and you need to know what the law is in your state if you're one of the 35 that have these laws. Yeah. By the way, there is an inherent potential conflict of interest between your insurance carrier and the hospital. The insurance carrier, by definition, doesn't want you saying much. The hospital may want to do a lot of disclosure. I think you ought to have a discussion in advance of a disaster. Why we don't do this more in medicine, it's amazing to me. But how are we going to coordinate this? How are we going to stage this? Frequently, the hospital's insurance and the doctor's insurance are not the same. 
you have different policies. And I get involved all the time in the settlements on cases where my real enemy is not the plaintiff. It's the hospital or another physician or something like that. And so don't ever think that this is a simple decision as to whether your insurance company is going to cooperate or not. There are nuances here which you should work out in advance. Yeah, early call to your insurance company would make a lot of sense. The other thing that you mentioned that is reinforced here is there is training. This is not something that everybody can do. And these websites are willing to train you, I'm sure, for some reasonable amount and, of money. And what is always pointed out is an insincere apology is worse than no apology at all. Well, I suppose I killed her, but you know what? It just saved you. It she had it coming. You. She had it coming. Right. <laughs> some exactly. of the elements of disclosure uh, disclosure should be temporally related to the event. The more you wait between the event and disclosure, the more problems there are. Families want to know quickly, but then that creates some risk there. Facts should be presented in language that the patients understand, that the patients should have the opportunity to ask questions. The information should include what was done, what should have been done, the likely problems, and what needs to be done, and what's been done to solve the problems so that other patients don't have it. Information about actions taken by the hospital to avoid this occurrence in the future is one of the major drivers of complaints against the, the physicians and hospitals. Assurance that neither the patient nor the family will incur financial liabilities as a result of this urge. That's obvious, but sometimes you get these doctors who think, well, if I drop the bill, they'll consider me uh, guilty. You're an idiot if you don't drop the bill. Then we did an interview with Kevin Clower, again, our friend, chief <clears throat> medical officer for emergency physicians in Canton, Ohio. The discussion was on aortic dissection. He is also one of the fine lecturers at the Emergency Medicine Abstracts courses, Yes, he I is. Yes. yes, he is. And he's also a fine lecturer at the National Emergency Medicine Board Review. He's also a fine lecturer at EMP's risk management course, which, I should tell you, Beta Health Pro will pay the tuition if you go to that course, because this is such an enlightened company. Yeah. All right. So moving on, the issue was aortic dissection, and the trigger was the John Ritter case, who had this atypical presentation, went to St. Joseph Hospital, was over in Burbank, and died. And Kevin's point was there are four chest killers, AMI, PE, aortic dissection, and tension pneumothorax, and you should tend to address those when you're examining patients. But let's be honest here. If you look at MIs in the United States, they're 400 times as common as a dissection. Well, that's why so many of these dissections get litigated, because they're rare. They're the needle in the haystack, but they're often delayed. They're between 5 and 7 per million population in the United States. Do the numbers, figure that out. But the registry for aortic dissection is at the University of Michigan, and the guy who runs that is pretty good on these numbers. I can't tell you a disease process which is more commonly litigated considering its frequency in the country. And the problem is so many of them are atypical. They ought to have something on their chest x-ray, but 30% don't. They ought to have a difference in their pulses, but 50% don't. I mean, there's a lot of things here which make this a difficult diagnosis. Whenever I see one of these cases, I say, Thank you, God, that I wasn't the doctor working that day. Well, that is the theme. The atypical case is mm-hmm. is typical. And right. the classic case that's in the textbook are not typical. Right. So the idea here about variable onset neurologic symptoms in the setting of chest pain or lack of chest pain, they're not going to have this shearing moving down through the back, you right. know, disproportionate pulses kind of thing. Other, so you're looking for aortic regurge for those that are involved in the aortic valve. Absence of pain, there's this whole litany of cases that have been litigated where pain was not the major component. By the time you get aortic regurge, you've back-dissected into the valve. 
the number of those patients who live, unfortunately, is painfully small. Even if you're at USC, going from the ER to the OR to splitting the chest and doing this case, there is some time delay, right? Absolutely. And in Los Angeles, this huge metropolitan area, maybe there's a dozen hospitals which could actually take you at that time immediately to surgery. I'll tell you, in the Detroit metropolitan area, maybe there's four. You think in most of this country they can move you to the operating room with that kind of speed? Well, that's a different story. This is about missing the diagnosis. You're not going to the operating room because you haven't made the diagnosis. Correct. Differential pulses, as you noted, are the exception rather than the rule. EKGs can show ischemia from coronary osteo occlusion. D-dimers, likely to be positive in 95% or better. Most will have an abnormal chest x-ray, but some don't. Check with the family history. These things run in families. And we had a great presentation by Dan Sullivan where he talked about a young kid who came in with chest pain. And the mother said, well, there's this aortic dissection in the family. And everybody just shined it on. And the fact is, what did he have? He had an aortic dissection. You know what? Is <laughs> Neil Little tells the very funny story of working in Flint, Michigan. And the guy comes in with chest pain. And says to Neil, well, you know, I think it's my aortic dissection. He says, why? Because that's what it felt the last time I had the <laughs> and Neil's, That's a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, yeah, it's the giveaway, right. Exactly. Kevin's quote was, the eye does not see what the mind does not know. You'll never make this diagnosis if you're not considering it. So the idea right. here is let your documentation reflect that you've considered the four chest killers. Right. And I certainly don't disagree with that. Well, Rick, it's April. 2008. And April showers bring what? Lawsuits. Our guest commentator this month who joined us on the panel was Jim Roberts, who's the co-author of Procedures in Emergency Medicine. He's a columnist for EM News. I don't understand how he can write that much stuff and so much excellent stuff. I am a true devotee and minion to Jim Roberts, and I think he's just a great guy. We're very lucky to have him on this. He did a superb presentation about residents in the emergency department. He's been training residents for years, and he talked about the things that we need to keep in mind. And one of those is we're often blown away by the great resident. We assume that they know more than they do. But no matter how smart they are, he made a very good point. Residents don't have a Medicare provider number. Only you have a Medicare provider number, which means you have an obligation to be there for the critical parts of exam and to review that exam and do what's right. By the way, these people are not credentialed to be attendings in your hospital. They are trainees. Emphasize the word trainee. Residents are agents of the hospital in a training license capacity, and that needs to be a part of their work. If a resident takes an assignment or is working, moonlighting someplace else, He should understand clearly that he has to have a separate insurance policy that names him because the hospital where he's working won't cover that. And he needs to have an independent state license. So in most states, that means two or three years of house officership before they even issue you a state license. And to think that you can work without a fully valid state license and separate malpractice insurance, absolutely wrong. Jim got into the discussion which every one of us has been involved with who deal with residents, and that is supervision of the off-service resident in the department. So now we've called for the surgeon to give us an opinion. All it is is an opinion. He pointed out that if you disagree with that opinion, 
then you're the one who's in charge and say, thank you very much, I need to speak to your attending. The residents all have attendings, just like you're an attending. When you talk to the attending, then you're having a doctor-to-doctor communication. When in doubt, you don't talk to the monkey, you talk to the organ grinder. And in this case, the organ grinder is the attending to that resident. If you don't like the opinion you got, have the attending come down and work out the case. If you don't believe the information you got was correct, get some help. Here's what you don't want. The off-service resident sending home a patient that you don't know about. It's just wrong. He is paid. He is in his capacity as a learner. You're in your capacity as someone who has charge of the case. Jim's discussion on that was absolutely brilliant. I can tell you what he said is my experience as well. So you call the attending and you're telling her the story about the case. And 99.9 times out of 100, the attending will say, um, of course I'll admit that patient. Are you crazy? That's not the story I got. Residents, we represent work to them and they want to protect each other. And there's a whole culture there that is really sometimes not in the best patient's interest. But the attending who actually is upstairs and doesn't have to do most of the work will say, yes, of course, admit the patient. This is crazy. So I find that as soon as I call the attending, it all gets diffused, it's fine, the patient magically disappears upstairs. This is the philosophy of be a wall. Keep them out. You know, our job is not to keep sick people out of the hospital the last time I checked. But you're right, they feel an obligation to protect their brother resident upstairs. And, you know, whenever you hear them start to say, I don't think all these 90-year-old women who actually collapse and have seizures need to be admitted. Well, the bottom line is, maybe there are a few who don't. But while I'm manning the department, if we don't have a reason, they're coming in. And you shouldn't even let them begin that discussion. Anyway, that was the off-service resident. He also made some comments about emergency medicine residents in the department. The fact that important procedures, you need to be there for the critical part of those procedures. Why? Because they don't have your experience. And what may be very simple for you, good example is the difficult LP. I mean, I've probably done a thousand of them in my career. And you have to have somebody who has the judgment to say, enough tries, enough attempts, we're going to take them over to radiology and do it under fluoro, that sort of thing, to get the thing done. What the residents have is amazing enthusiasm and no judgment. Why? Because they haven't seen that many cases. And then Jim gave us something which I think is the most valuable part of the discussion, was a list of the things the residents shouldn't do alone. And for this piece only, the tape was worth it. Because he talked about the difficulty when a patient is becoming an against medical advice patient. When the doctor-patient relation is deteriorating, that's when you need to bring in the big gun because the young guns just haven't had enough practice in negotiating down with these patients what's going to be done. This is the reason I am losing my hair. (laughs) It's <laughs> for these circumstances. Of course. So that I can walk around the room and they can see somebody who's old and gray. Exactly. And in fact, my job is to shake hands with the babies, kiss the mothers, and make sure that everybody's happy. And that's okay. And I will come in and say, look, I'm the old guy they keep around here just to make sure that everyone's happy. I think it's because also I have no pride left anymore. Yeah. When I was young, I had pride and I was right. Now I don't care. I yes. just, you know, I just want to smooth things over and make exactly. the patients happy. But I'll his, do what it takes. His second point was great too. When you're discussing with the family members the death of a relative, 
they do look at these kids. And if you look at them, they are children. I have shoes and belts older than most of them. Maybe that 58, 65-year-old wife who's now got a dead 70-year-old husband doesn't want to hear it from that young man who ran the code. Maybe you ought to be in there to help comfort this situation only because you've been there so many times you understand when it's falling apart. He also talked about securing the do not resuscitate orders. And I think that's probably right that sometimes you have to help families say goodbye and part and decide would they want to be on machines and that sort of thing is very definitely a part of an attendings job. Although doctors do need to learn how to do these kinds of things and so they can watch and you can let them try it but you're there as well you can step in if it's not going well. Right. Well but Jim points that out what he says is they shouldn't do it alone. That means it is with you. He doesn't say you do it he says, you be there so you can figure it out. Sometimes they do it better than us, and I'm there to learn from them. Yeah, and he talks about some of the other things that they ought to be there for, but it was a very nice section when you listen to it, and you think about all the reasons they have someone at our age in the department, and those were the correct things. Jim had this figured out, and he did a great job. We also had a clinical topic that he commented on, well, that was wound care. And nobody knows wound care better than Jim does. Yeah. And he talked about Miss Foreign Bodies. By the way, the lawsuits in Wound are Miss Foreign Body, Miss Foreign Body, and Miss Foreign Body. Now, there's a few in there about a tendon and a nerve, that sort of thing. But it's clearly a major issue. And you need to chart the fact that you've done a reasonable search. What we know is shattered glass is seen on x-ray if it's in the wound. We used to say, well, depend on its lead content. We published some articles in Emergency Medicine Abstract that actually looked at that question, and I believe it was like 96 or 97% of glass showed up in, they did the chicken wing studies where they shoved various bits of glass into chicken wings, and 0.5 millimeter size flex of glass were seen on the x-ray and identified by radiologists. Yeah, there's this myth that only lead glass shows up on x-ray, and that's just not true. That's not true. And they're great studies. They take steak and chicken, they shove glass in it, and take an x-ray. Look, it's pretty easy. So the idea here is having a low threshold for glass-caused wounds. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to take out the two-millimeter piece of glass, but you can say, there's glass in your wound, I'll do more damage getting it out than leaving it there. Let's watch it, let's get you followed up. doesn't mean you have to go after it. Yeah, those of us who are old enough to have practiced in the 70s, that sort of thing, we remember before seatbelts, the stellate lesions on foreheads from coming up against the windshield was so common, and the bottom line of that was always, do you have glass in there? Yes, you do. You don't want me to spend the evening picking each fleck out. It will come to the surface. But you tell them in advance that the foreign bodies will make their way to the surface. Then you look so smart because you figured it out. Well, he had this advice about avoid telling patients there are no foreign bodies in the wound because there might be some tiny, teeny, tiny things that they spit out later. So it would be foolish for you to say say it's clean. Right. To say what? That there's no foreign Foreign bodies in the wound. He just can't say that. Right. And you say it exactly the way you brought up, which is, look, we don't see anything right now there, but there could be something. Your body's really good at expressing this stuff. And I've done that a number of times where you see the patient later and they say, you know, you see how it said that that thing might come out? Woke up one morning and this wood was poking out of the wound. Yes. You're the exactly smartest like a, doctor in the world. It's like, it's actually a two by four. I'm <laughs> out of my foot. <laughs> by the way, I'll tell you this. Whenever a glass foreign body is presented in court, 
They always have it encased, and it looks like a piece from the rose window <laughs> at Notre Dame. You know, it, it's huge. It's just like the way they take the photo of the swimming pool at cheap motels down a low angle so it looks big and long. <laughs> well, that's what they present in court. There was also a discussion about puncture wounds, which I think was good, and understanding that, again, can there be little flecks of something in there? Yep, warn them about it. We don't open all of these things up but you visualize the best you can. He mentioned the fact that whenever we have a puncture wound through rubber-soled shoes, the tennis shoe, it's worthwhile to think about the pseudomonas infection. I think that I've probably seen a dozen of those in my career, and they're bad. This is a problem. And pseudomonas lives in rubber-soled shoes. Although he did say Cipro was not prophylactically was not the standard of care and I think that's important to acknowledge. Yeah, I think his biggest point that I took away from that is to tell the patient there's a really good chance this is going to get infected. There's not much we can do about it except watch it really closely and he has a whole algorithm you can follow but to tell the patient this is a bad wound. Was he suggesting that any prophylaxis is reasonable at that time or is it just the wound? Well, I've heard him at Essentials and other places talk saying that the evidence for the prophylaxis is not very good. You do an x-ray, you make sure there's not a big foreign body. If it's there, you pull it out, you irrigate it as best you can, although it's hard with a puncture wound. But it's really about follow-up. It's about most of the time you'll get away with it and sometimes you don't. And so following the patient is key. Jim made another interesting point and that is plain x-ray in this sort of thing is probably something left over from the last century that... If you think there's a chip of wood, a piece of rubber, that sort of thing in that wound, get a study which shows a foreign body. And these days, that's probably doing an MRI. Or he also mentioned that an ultrasound in certain cases might be reasonable. But just because it's X-ray negative, I think X-ray negative foreign bodies are the one that we have the most problem with. I once had a gal who was riding a horse by a fence post There's a nail there poked, and it put in a little piece of the jeans she was wearing. Mm -hmm. X-ray negative, of course. Did the pus come rolling out in 10 days? Absolutely. And it was because she was not properly prepped for this situation that we had a problem. And last but not least... Let's take it to May 2008. And again, our guest commentator is Jim Roberts, who's the Director of Toxicology at Mercy Catholic Hospital in Philadelphia. And he wrote the book, ladies and gentlemen, on many things, but he's a toxicologist as well. So here are the general toxicology comments that we had on this CD, which I thought was outstanding. First of all, general comments. Treat the symptoms rather than the blood levels was the first most important point. He really is sort of down on this idea that you should be doing lots of drug levels in toxicology patients. Look at the patient, look at their symptoms, treat those. That is the entire basis of good toxicology therapy. Epicac and gastric lavage have side effects and be very careful about using them. By the way, is anybody doing Epicac anymore? I thought that had been abandoned. And if you haven't watched some kid vomiting like crazy and aspirate, you haven't lived. We used to, and again, this is the old days, mothers would keep Ipecac at home, and then they'd give them the Ipecac and drive them to the emergency department so they're vomiting on the way in. I just think that Ipecac probably has no reasonable use in emergency medicine anymore, does well, it? Well, they're really playing down the idea of gastric decontamination unless you've taken a lethal overdose. You've just taken it like a half hour ago. Right. And there aren't any good studies that show it makes an outcome difference. It's just theoretical. Well, if we can get it out of there, it'll be better off for you. But that's not really ever been proven. One of the things I'd like to go back on, though, mm-hmm. the only blood level that matters 
is these acetaminophen blood levels because these people are asymptomatic and sitting there and their liver is about to be destroyed. Right. So we have to make that clear that, and some people think that they should be routinely done. Other people think they can be selectively done. But I think the key thing is to be aware of it. He talks a little bit more about that further on that CD. But yeah, that's the important. A low threshold seems a reasonable thing to do for acetaminophen, Tylenol, Panadol in other countries because it has mostly a silent toxidrome. Until you've almost killed your liver, the cytochrome P450 doesn't have a lot of ways of manifesting itself in symptoms. That's the problem. So as much as we have turned away from Epicac and gastric lavage, and there might be rare circumstances you do that now, we really like charcoal still. And so charcoal is good, and we use it a lot for gastric decontamination, but he reminds us we shouldn't give it to everybody because charcoal aspiration is very bad. It can produce an acute lung injury pattern, ARDS by all nomenclature, so you don't want to be doing it unless you need to, and you don't want to be doing it and somebody doesn't have a good airway. Exactly right. I think that the amount of charcoal we're giving these days is going down as well. I just don't think it's Yeah, I'd common. sell your Kingsford stock. <laughs> I'd sell the Kingsford stock right now. Yeah. And in fact, he suggests that gastric decontamination is no longer considered the standard of care. Very different to even me. I'm a young boy. When I trained in the early 90s, everybody got charcoal. That was considered standard. I mean, if yes. you came in and you'd had one too many cigarettes, would be given you charcoal. And there's really been a turn away from gastric decontamination in general. Charcoal is the last one to go, but we are still using it a little bit. Then he talked about negative tox panels. So be very clear that negative tox panels doesn't mean you haven't ingested something. So a negative screen doesn't rule out that you've ingested something. And a positive screen, well, there can be a lot of false positives as well. We tend to think of these screens as objective evidence, binomial, yes, no. But many of these are colorimetric, and they depend on the person who's in the lab at the time holding up the little thing into the light and saying, it's pink or it's not pink. So these are not absolute tests at all, so don't make bad decisions based on negative or even positive tox panels. And in fact, there is also a turn away from doing tox panels. They used to be done on everybody. Now we're doing them less and less and less. Measuring blood alcohols. Now, he was very, I think, adamant about this, is that there's probably many more downsides to doing blood alcohol levels than to doing blood alcohol levels. Again, something we used to do routinely, but getting a blood alcohol level can get you into some hot water. And it doesn't really change the management in any patient. The point is, we have developed certain levels in blood alcohol which have to do with operating a plane or a car and these sorts of things. We had to pick a number because we need something objective. Where the truth is, the effects of alcohol, uh, neurologic ability of people, is huge. You get some 15-year-old kid who's gotten into the liquor cabinet at .08, he's damn near dead. If you look at people who are training for the event, whose alcohol (laughs) dehydrogenase is at Olympic levels, you know, at 400, they're starting to shake. They're going into withdrawal. So I think that to pick a number and know how to treat the patient is wrong. Jim's absolutely right on this. I don't care what the number is. If they don't look right, they don't look right. And that's important for disposition, too. There's no number where you can say, okay, they're safe to go home. That's a clinical diagnosis. Can they walk? Can they talk? Are they competent to make the decision to go home? And having a level doesn't help you with that because, as you say, in our hospital, we have patients who literally start to withdraw when their blood alcohol is in the two or 300 range. And we have to try and find that magic window from intoxicated to not withdrawing. Right, exactly. But we do sort of have the Olympic athletes of alcohol intoxication at my right. hospital. 
Now, another thing you talked about was what we just spoken about a few minutes ago was having a low threshold for getting an acetaminophen level. It's a silent toxidrome, and these levels can actually be useful. Now, there's a lot of controversy within these levels as to when to treat, when not to treat, particularly if you have chronic liver disease, particularly if you have chronic ingestions, and that's for another full discussion on tape. But basically, this is one level that you should have a fairly low threshold for getting. And the key is it's treatable. Right. A lot of these, you know, really aren't. And if well, you get the level and you're not sure what to do, another of his points is contact the poison control center. There are people at these poison control centers. That's their life to discuss and help you and do this stuff. So if you have any question, 1-800-TOX-PERSON. Yeah, Call and, them. And by the way, things change often enough that, you know, most of us have a 12-year-old toxicology book sitting on the shelf or something like that. The truth is I almost never open those books. I'm going to call the tox center and say, I've got this problem. What do you think about this, 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 and this? And they've got pretty much the latest data. And all of them have an MD-level toxicologist available if you need them for these sorts of treatments. And I think that the poison centers certainly have a place in the management of these problems. The next series of topics that he covered was, first of all, carbon monoxide poisoning, which is still an very important cause of death and neurological disability in this country. And so it's the sneaky ones. The easy ones are somebody who's found in the garage and they've got the tailpipe in the car. Anybody can make the diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning. But he brought up those sort of subtle ways that these patients can present. So if you have a whole household of patients who present with flu-like symptoms and nausea and headache, ask about things like, well, were you cooking the hibachi in the middle of winter indoors? Could this be the problem? And not that everybody had flu at exactly the same time. That's not how flu works. Consider exhaust exposure as the source of toxicity and that can occur and actually it was occurring in LA in one of these schools which was right next to a big interchange back in the 80s and all the kids were coming to school at the, at, and they're like headaches and they're like checking the carbon monoxide levels in it. It was a problem. So think about it when you have these groups of people who present with very similar diseases. That's not how infectious disease works. That's how tox works. Riding in the back of the pickup truck with the camper on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, listen, I have seen very difficult cases with this. And telling all the truth here, I missed a first one because that child lived in the house. Nobody else is sick. But his bedroom was above the garage that they put on next to the exhaust stack where the furnace exhaust went in and it leaked back through into his bedroom. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very difficult case and eventually came up with that diagnosis, but not the first time in. Now, he suggests that carboxyhemoglobin levels can help you make <clears throat> the diagnosis. If you're not sure, you get a carboxyhemoglobin level and it's high, but it's not particularly useful for determining the severity of the disease. By the time you get it, They've already lost lots of it from their blood, but it might be still affecting their brain. So you can't use it to guide your therapy so much, but it might help you make the correct diagnosis. And a really interesting thing that he talked about was hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I think he has a lower threshold for using that than a lot of other people. He's suggesting that maybe that suggests that you did everything you could, particularly in these bad cases. To have an academic discussion about whether it works or not may not be particularly helpful to you if you've got a really sick patient Providing it to the patient might protect you in some circumstances. And Greg, I'd be interested to know what you think about that, even though we could argue about whether it really helps sick patients. Does it look better to the jury if you've at least offered it and said, look, we offered it to them, uh, the family, we try to transport them? Well, the problem is that the public perception and the science are not in sync with each other at this time. People think you send them to one of those chambers where they go down and they pop out their tympanic membranes and all that kind of stuff. They honestly believe that they think it's like treating the bends, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Unfortunately, and I'll tell you what, I was as disappointed as anybody 
when those papers came out that said it didn't make any difference. When we all saw that stuff, I think everybody was upset. I'd like to have a therapy for this. And Jim's point that it is part of the show is probably not a bad idea. Then he talked about pediatric ingestions. And the first, the most important point that I think he made clinically was that if you've got a kid with an unusual presentation, you need to think toxic ingestion. I can't work out what's going wrong. There's something up with this kid. Go further to the toxicology history and physical examination. Maybe this kid got into something to make them a little bit loopy. Consider amphetamines in the seizing child is always important. Consider INH yes, in the seizing child. I, I wrote that right down here. Yes, INH, particularly in immigrant populations, they get into grandma's INH or dad's INH, and these kids see, see, sees, and no matter what you do, you can't stop them seizing. Think INH, and then you're going to give them a B shot, and they're going to get all better. Iron is a leading cause of overdose death in kids still today. So iron is out there. It's given to lots of different people. Little kids... Iron ingestion can be fatal, and it doesn't take very much. Five, ten milligrams per kilogram can be a serious ingestion in a little child. So think of iron ingestion. And reporting of accidental ingestions may be required in your state. This is the point on this. Whenever you have a child with multiple visits to the emergency department with ingestions, it is child abuse at the worst. It's child neglect at the least. And it's worthwhile to bring somebody in to look at that situation. I think multiple ingestions or multiple kids in the same family with ingestions, there's a problem there. And I think that we're not doing our job unless we let the child protective authorities know about this. He then talked about aspirin classically presents with your respiratory alkalosis and then you get the metabolic acidosis. But the key things he said, remember, GI upset, hypoglycemia, and particularly in the elderly, they're chronically on aspirin, and then they take a big dose of, or not even that big, they just take an extra dose of aspirin, they can get very sick. So the acute on chronic can be very, very sick patients, often elderly patients, hard to detect. That pseudosepsis syndrome is something you need to think about. And then heroin. Heroin's a big problem because many of the patients who are injecting heroin have developed personality traits that we don't like a lot and our nurses don't like so we can really get ourselves into trouble we've talked about they can get infections these are a high risk group of patients so one of the things you need to think about is I've given them Narcan and I've woken them up and they're kind of obnoxious I want to send them home get out of my emergency department because now they're withdrawing he suggests you got to keep them for at least 90 minutes after you've given them Narcan to make sure that they're not going to go down again nothing worse than waking them up sending them away having them fall asleep under a bus somewhere bad form. Yeah, and all of us have seen that. I mean, I see less of it now in in my practice, but that guy who you gave the shot to, he now gets up and he's very indignant. Now you've just ruined his 25 buck high and he's wandering out and bang, they hit the floor again because it's hitting him. Jim's right on that issue. And if they want to leave... They've had a big heroin overdose, you've woken them up and they want to take off out of there, then you might be in a circumstance where you have to stop them and say, look, I can't let you leave for 90 minutes. We can do it the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is I'll get you a sandwich, I'll try and make you feel better and you're going to stay here for an hour or so. And the hard way is you're going to try and leave and I'm going to have to get my big boys here to tackle you. So just know that you might have to do that. And in talking about tackling people with big boys and girls, the use of restraints was the next thing he talked about. So this can be a real quagmire, but Let's be very clear. He made it very clear that if you don't think this person has capacity and they want to leave, that you are far more likely to get in trouble for just letting them leave 
than adequately restraining them and protecting them from themselves and protecting your staff. So if they want to leave but you think that they haven't got the capacity to make that decision, then you should adequately sedate and restrain the patient until they're at a point in their disease that they can make the determination for themselves that they can leave. A point in this is that families need to be involved because if you've got family members waiting out there, they don't want to take these people home. I'll tell you that right now. They brought him to your place for a reason. They need to be brought into the confidence of the fact that he could die. He could do this or that. We need to do this. You know, we're in the emergency business. Are there going to be certain things we have to do which are uncomfortable? Yes. We're not dermatologists. That's what we do. And sometimes you have to act like you're a big person and are in control of this situation. The key things to this from a medical malpractice point of view, he suggested, is follow your hospital protocol, put the patient on a monitor, and do serial reassessments of the patient to make sure that they're okay, and write that down. Right. Checked them now. I checked them 15 minutes later. I checked. These are high-risk patients. They often have multiple drug ingestions. They have psychiatric problems. We know about these circumstances where we restrain them, and then 10 minutes later, they're dead. Be very careful. It's a high-risk situation. And what you're looking at is to be able to put down honestly the phrase, the patient constitutes a danger to self or others in this condition. And I just don't know that anybody's suing emergency doctors these days for doing the right thing like this. I mean, most of these families understand that Billy was not right and that he needed to be protected. Well, again, one of your famous quotes is, when you're in front of the jury, I did for this patient what I would have done for my mother or my son or my wife. I did the right thing. I'm sorry I did the right thing. And to complete that, if I am guilty, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is of loving too much. And the crowd went wild. (laughs) Okay, well, let's say that patient comes in intoxicated or you reverse the person with heroin and they get up and they say, bye-bye, and they're fast, boom, and they leave the hospital and they're intoxicated and you worry about them. What are the things that you can do for this person? Well, he suggests that you undertake a reasonable search in your own premises. Check the bathroom, check the emergency department, look around, make sure they're not, you know, collapsed in the hallway somewhere. That's the first thing. Contact hospital security because you're going to be seeing patients. Hospital security, here's the person, here's the description. Try and find that person. Attempt to get in touch with them by a phone or a family member and say, look, if Mr. Smith comes home, we really need to see him again. The key is this, Mel. If you've got somebody who has eloped, make the search, contact the family Look around. Look at the usual and customary places where the patients go. If you have a smoking area, these patients smoke. At least check that sort of thing. If they have a vehicle, have the security check the vehicle. And then you've kind of done what you can do at that moment in time. We won't catch every one of them on the way out. The door. Well, your know, other thing is, is that the police can be notified just doing it with your hospital security. What if this guy's out driving around the street now? You know, you have to let him know that this person was intoxicated. We're very concerned. And their jurisdiction now is beyond the hospital campus. Right. Now, we talked about when intoxicated patients want to leave, and I've already covered that. You've got to document well this person has an acute brain syndrome that we can't let them leave because they're a danger to themselves or they're a danger to others. And so, therefore, we're going to restrain them. We're going to follow our hospital policy and protocols, and we're going to keep that person until they're okay to leave. And I explain that to the patient, and I do do the routine. So, look, I can't let you leave. The hospital won't let me do that. The state doesn't let me do that. We can do it the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is sandwich, TV on going to have a good time and hang out the hard way is if you try and leave i'm going to have to stop you as you remember this provoked the discussion of duty to unnamed third parties which was you may not know the name of the person they're going to hurt but if we let them out 
there is a reasonable chance that they'll get in an auto accident, they'll harm someone. And so people have a right to come back and expect that you're going to protect the society in general on some of these issues. So the issue here is failing to provide adequate supervision. You would rather restrain them than be accused of well, look at he jumped out the window, or look at he left the building unauthorized and got hit by a bus, and that is failure to maintain adequate supervision. What the lawyers would say, better to be charged with malfeasance than nonfeasance. People understand that doctors have to act. What they don't understand is when doctors don't act. He then talked about the routine use of tox panels in trauma patients and said, look, tox panels, fine if it's clinically indicated, but routine is another matter and that's sort of an academic discussion. But far more important, and one I found really interesting and a real problem is writing prescriptions for family members, friends, and unknown patients. And he said, look, this is a setup for problems because you have no chart, you've done no examination, you don't know if the insurance is going to cover it, the follow-up is going to be difficult. This is a real quagmire that we all do all the time. Let's <laughs> be honest, we do this the all the time. Well, maybe you do it all the time. Be very careful of extending your license where you have no protection. Without a chart, without some formal relationship, your malpractice carrier, there's, there's no way in hell they're going to cover that case. But I was trying to be nice. Surely you'll cover me for that. Yeah, yeah, right. Nice guys do finish last, and the first person you save in emergency medicine is yourself. <laughs> but the reason I find it so interesting is because people I know, friends, family, relatives, calls and says, I've got this problem and I'm pretty comfortable with it, and I do that. But what the real problem is is the nurse, the person who's more <laughs> just, and you can't see them and saying, <clears throat> oh, could you please just, and the one I hate the most, I took yesterday off work. Could you write me a, a, a note, note for yesterday? Says, yeah. And I, when I was a young well, man, I'd like, oh, I like that nurse. I'll do that, but not anymore. No, <laughs> that, that's just a lie. That's not going to get you sued. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well the other thing unless is, unless of course you miss something, and then there's your signature on the bottom of it. Yeah, giving away this sort of free curbside kinds of stuff has always been a problem because you don't do it the right way each time. It's sort of a side thing. You know what? Medicine isn't a hobby. I mean, you either kind of do this or you don't. Although, to be candid, in your extensive experience of doing this for 30 years, has this been a problem? Come on. A couple of cases. A couple of cases. By the way, though, you do have a right as an emergency physician to properly protect your own assets for the well-being of your family, you know, your children, that sort of thing. They shouldn't ask you to put your assets at risk. They it's don't not understand right. that. They right. don't want to go to the doctor. Doctor visits two hundred bucks. You know, I get bronchitis. It worked last time when I got the Z pack. Help me out here. Don't <laughs> yeah. be a jerk. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kinda of hard to go against that to tell you the It's truth. hard but what I try and do is I say, Look, let me examine you and do all this stuff first and then I'm more comfortable. But doing the stuff over the phone, little Johnny's it's the kids actually that freak me out the most. Little Johnny's got a fever. Can you just call something in like I'm freaked out enough when I see a little kid with a fever in there in front of me. So right. let, bring him over, let me see him, or take him to the year of doc. Yeah. I don't want to do that one. And by the way, what do you think those little spots yeah. are? He's got this little red butt. bump. Oh, that's nothing. It's called Not a problem. It'll yeah, get, yeah. It'll all right. Away. Gentlemen, we have completed a review of Whew. year one of Risk Management Monthly. Done it in two discs. Two discs set, baby. But if you didn't listen to any of that stuff before, all those issues, this is the essence of it. This is what you really need to know to practice. For those of you who've heard it, I hope this was a great review. And I always felt comfortable when I was in school that they were actually telling me something I already knew because maybe I learned something the first time. Well, repetition is the mother of invention. It really is. Anyway, we're going to do next year 
in the next issue. Excellent. Bye-bye. Bye. See you.